Selections from the Index of Organic Chemistry by W. H. Perkin and F. Stanley Kipping. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Son of the Exiles. Organic Chemistry by W. H. Perkin and F. Stanley Kipping. Selections from the Index. Acetyl, 127. Acetaldehyde, 84, 96, 122. Acetaldehyde hydrazone, 136. Acetaldoxine, 124, 134. Acetals, 143. Acetamide, 164. Acet analyde 872 374. Acetic acid 96 149. Acetic acid electrolysis of 58. Acetic acid salts of 153. Acetic anhydride 163. Acetic ether, 189. Acetoacetic acid, 193, 199. Acetone, 89, 130. Acetone cyanohydrin, 142. Acetone dichloride, 142. Acetone hydrazone, 136. Acetone mercaptol, 188. Acetone pinnacone, 141. Acetone sodium bisulfite, 131. Acetone dicarboxylic acid, 253. Acetonitrile, 164. 294. Acetophenone, 423. Acetophenone hydrazone, 424. Acetophenone oxime, 424. Acetotoluidide, 372. Acetoxime, 135. Acetyl chloride, 161. Acetylbenzene, 423. Acetylcellulose, 282. Acetylcodeine, 510. Acetylene, 72. 81. Acetylene series, 80. Acetylformic acid, 200. Acetyl fructose, 271. Acetyl glucose, 268. Beta acetyl propionic acid, 200. Acid amides, 164, 169. Acid anhydrides, 162, 169. Acid bromides, 162. 
acid chlorides, 161, 169. Acid dyes, 518. Acid green, 522. Aconitic acid, 253. Acraldehyde, 262. Acrolein, 255, 261, 262. Acrolein bromide, 263. Alpha acros, 272. Acrylaniline, 495. Acrylic acid, 263. Active amyl alcohol, 106. 544, 545. Additive products, 77. Adipic acid, 235, 244. Alanine, 301. Alcohol, 94. Alcohol determination of, 102. Alcohol manufacture of, 100. Alcoholic liquors, 103. Alcoholometry, 101. Alcohols, monohydric, 89, 414. Alcohols, nomenclature of, 103. Alcohols, oxidation of, 110. Alcohols, polyhydric, 253. 264. Alcohols, trihydric, 253. Aldehyde, ammonia, 124. Aldehyde, cyanohydrin, 142. Aldehyde, resin, 124. Aldehydes, 118, 417. Aldehydes, condensation of, 144. Aldehydes, oxidation of 142. Aldol, 126. Aldoxymes, 134. Aliphatic compounds, 332. Alizarine, 478. Diacetate, 430. Dying with 516. Alkali blue, 529. Alkaloids, 497. Extraction of, 499. Alkaloids contained in opium, 508. Derived from pyridine, 501. Derived from quinoline, 504. Related to uric acid, 510. Alkyl chlorides, 117. Alkyl cyanides, 293. Alkyl hydrides, 117. Alkyl hydrogen sulfates, 80, 185. Alkyl isocyanates, 296. Alkyl radicals, 117. 
alkyl anilines, 377. Alkaline radicals, 117. Aline, 86. Allyl alcohol, 260. Allyl bromide, 262. Allyl iodide, 261. Allyl isothiocyanate, 262, 298. Allyl sulfide, 262. Allylene, 81, 86, 87. Aluminium ethyl, 223. Amylenic acid, 510. Amides, 164. Amidoacetic acid, 229, 299. Amido acids, 299. Amido azobenzene, 387, 533, 535. Sulfonic acid, 534. Amido azo compounds, 386. Amido azo toluene hydrochloride, 534. Amidobenzaldehydes, 421. Amidobenzene, 373. Amidobenzene sulfonic acids, 396, 397. Amidobenzoic acid, 435, 450, 540. Amido compounds, 368. Amido ethyl alcohol, 439. Amido ethyl sulfonic acid, 513. Amido formic acid, 301. Amido naphthalene, 457, 465. Alpha amido beta naphthol, 468. 1 4 amido naphthol, 468. Amido phenol, 427. Amido propionic acid, 232, 301. Amido toluene, 376. Amines, 204, 380. Amines, separation of primary, secondary, and tertiary, 213. Amygdalin, 287, 418. Amyl acetate, 193. Amyl alcohol, 106, 107, 545. Cyanide, 545. Iodide, 545. Nitrite, 184. Amyl alcohols, 106. Amyl hydrogen sulfate, 106. Amylene, 78. Amylum, 273. Anethol, 423, 452. Anhydrides, 162. 
Aniline, 373. Homologues of, 376. Substitution products of, 375. Sulfonic acid, 396. Aniline blue, 529. Aniline yellow, 535. Animal charcoal, 7. Anisaldehyde, 417, 423. Anisic acid, 417, 423, 452. Anisole, 405. Anisyl alcohol, 417, 423. Anthracene, 308, 338, 470. Anthracene derivatives, isomerism of, 475. Anthracene dichloride, 475. Anthracene disulfonic acids, 478. Anthracene oil, 308. Anthracene picrate, 471. Anthranilic acid, 435, 450, 540. Anthranol, 477. Anthropurpurine, 481. Anthroquinone, 475. Anthroquinone beta monosulfonic acid, 477, 479. Anthroquinone disulfonic acid, 481. Anthroquinone sulfonic acid, sodium salt of, 478. Antifebrin, 374. Antipyrine, 511. Aribinose, 264. Aribitol, 264. Arbutin, 411. Argol, 247. Aromatic, alcohols, 414. Aldehydes, 417. Amines, 380. Compounds, general properties of, 331. Halogen derivatives, 352. Arsines, 215. Aceptol, 408. Asparagin, 245. Aspartic acid, 245. Asymmetric carbon atom, 544. Atropine, 503. Aurin, 524, 530. Azobenzene, 391, 514, 538. Azobenzene sulfonic acid, 533. Azo compounds, 390, 533. Azo dyes, 583. 534, 535. Azoxybenzene, 
390. Azoxy compounds, 390. Azulmic acid, 286. Ballastite, 282. Barley sugar, 275. Basic dyes, 518. 534. Bauman and Schotten's method, 433. Beer preparation of, 98. Benzal chloride, 362. 418. Benzaldehyde, 418. Benzaldehyde green, 522. Benzaldoxime, 419. Benzamide, 433. Benzene, 85. 307. 308. Constitution of, 313. Benzene derivatives, isomerism of, 313. Benzene hexabromide, 313. Benzene hexachloride, 313. Benzene hexahydride, 385. Benzene homologues of, 339. Benzene synthesis of, 311. Benzene meta-dicarboxylic acid, 439. Benzene ortho-dicarboxylic acid, 438. Benzene para-dicarboxylic acid, 440. Benzene disulfonic acid, 396. Benzene sulfonamide, 396. Benzene sulfonic acid, 395. Benzene sulfonic chloride, 396. Benzidine, 391, 537. Benzyl, 420. Benzine, 70. Benzoic acid, 430. Salts of, 431. Substitution products of 434. Benzoic anhydride 432. Benzoin 420. Benzonitrile 433. Benzophenone 351. 424. Benzopurpurin 538. Benzoquinone, 425. Benzotrichloride, 362. Benzoyl chloride, 432. Benzoyl derivatives, 433. Benzoyl benzene, 424. Benzoyl benzoic acid, 476. Benzoyl glycine, 300. Benzoyl group, 432. Benzyl acetate, 361. 416. Alcohol, 415. Bromide, 415. 
chloride, 353, 355, 361, 418, 474, cyanide, 442, radical, 344, benzylamine, 380, benzylidine radical, 420, benzylidine acetone, 420, benzylidine hydrazone, 419, benzylidine hydroxycyanide, 420, benzalmalonic acid, 442, betaine, 512, chloride, 513, biosis, 266, 283, Bismarck Brown, 536, Bismuth, alkyl compounds of, 217, Boiling Point, 9, Bone Oil, Bone Tar, 485, Bordeaux, 537, Brilliant Green, 522, Bromoacetic acids, 166. Bromacetylene, 333. Bromanthroquinone, 476. Bromethane, 179. Bromethylamine, 439. Bromethylene, 77. Bromethylphalamide, 439. Bromination of acids. 167. Bromine detection of. 16. Bromine estimation of. 27. Bromobenzene. 358. Bromobenzoic acids. 435. Bromobenzoic acid. 476. Bromobenzyl bromide, 474, 482. Bromoform, 178. Bromohexahydrobenzene, 335. Bromohexamethylene, 335. Bromonaphthalenes, 463. Bromonitrobenzenes, 367. Bromophthalic acid and hydride, 476. Alpha bromopropionic acid, 231, 232. Beta bromopropionic acid, 233. Bromosuccinic acid, 245. Bromotoluene, 474. Brucine, 507. Meth iodide, 508. Butaldehyde, 129, 137. Butane, 61, 67. Butter, 173. Butyl alcohol, normal, 104, 106. Butyl chloral, 129. 
butyl chloral hydrate, 129, butyl iodide, 180, 181, butyl iodide secondary, 80, butyl iodide tertiary, 181, butyl amine, 211, alpha butylene, 78, beta butylene, 78, gamma butylene, 78, butylene dibromide, 87, butylene glycol, 80, 227, butyric acid, normal, 158, butyric acid, salt salt, 159, butyrolactone, 530, butyrone, 137, butyrophenone, 424, cocodyl, 218, cocodyl chloride, 218, cocodyl cyanide, 218, cocodyl oxide, 217, cacodylic acid, 218, caffeine, 510, calcium carbide, 82, calico printing, 517, cane sugar, 274, capraldehyde, 137, caproic acid, 160, caramel, 275, carbamic acid, 301, carbamide, 301, carbazole, 471, carbonyl, 89, 103, carbohydrates, 266, carbolic acid, 307, 308, 404, carbon detection of, 14, carbon estimation of, 18, Carbon tetrachloride, 177. Carbonyl chloride, 177, 302. Carbonyl group, 132. Carboxyl group, 156. Carboxylic acids, 156, 428. Carbolamine reaction, 176, 207, carbolamines, 294, Carius's method of analysis, 27, carvacrol, 349, 409, casein, 277, catechol, 410, 480, Catechol carboxylic acid, 452. Catechu, 410. Celluloid, 282. Cellulose, 281. 
cellulose nitrates, 282. Cetyl alcohol, 109. Cetyl palmitate, 192. Chloracetanilide, 375. Chloracetic acid, 166. Chloral, 127. Chloral alcoholate, 127. Chloral hydrate, 128. Chloranol, 428. Chloranolines, 375. Chlorethane, 178. Chlorethylene, 77. Chlorine carrier, 166. 352. Chlorine detection of, 16. Chlorine estimation of, 27. Chlorobenzene, 357. Chlorobenzoic acid, 360. Chlorobenzyl chloride, 354. Chloroform, 56, 128, 175. Alpha chlorohydrin, 257, 258. Beta chlorohydrin, 257, 258. Chlorohydrins, 80, 228, 257. Chloromalonic acid, 245. Chloromethane, 174. Chloronaphthalenes, 462, 463. Chloronitrobenzenes, 367, 375. Alpha chloropropionic acid, 166, 231. Beta chloropropionic acid, 166, 233. Chlorotoluenes, 360. Choline, 512. Chrysiodine, 535. Synchomeronic acid, 496. Synchona bark alkaloids of, 506. Synchonine, 506. Siaconinic acid, 506. Synamic acid, 443. Synamic aldehyde, 417. Citric acid, 251. Citric acid salts of, 252. Closed chain compounds, 332. Coal tar distillation of, 305, 309. Coca, alkaloids of, 504. Cocaine, 504. Codeine, 508, 510. Coke, 305. Collidines, 491. Collodion, 282. Calabase, 
520. Combustion apparatus. 19. 20. Condensation. 133. Congo group of dyes. 537. Congo red. 468. 537. Connying. 501. Constitution of organic compounds. 48. Constitutional formulae. 50. Copper acetylide. 83. Cordite. 260. 282. Cream of tartare. 249. Creosote oil. 308. Cresols. 308. 408. Croton aldehyde. 126. 263. Crotonic acid. 264. Crotonoline. 81. 87. Crystallization. 6. Cumin. 349. Cumic acid. 349. Cyamelide. 295. Cyanic acid. 295. Cyanides. 290. Cyanides double. 291. Cyanogen. 285. Cyanogen chloride. 287. Cyanogen compounds. 285. Cyanohydrins. 136. 142. Cyanuric acid. 287. Cyanuric chloride. 287. Cymene. 349. Dahlia. 527. Daturine. 503. Decane. 67. Dextrin. 98. 280. Dextrose. 267. Dextrotartaric acid. 251. 542. 543. Diacetin. 256. Diacetylchlorohydrin. 258. Dialyl. 87. Dialyl tetrabromide. 87. Diamidoazobenzene hydrochloride. 536. Diamidoazobenzenes. 366. 368. 376. Diamido compounds. 373. 376. Diamidodiphenyl. 391. 1,4-diamidonaphthalene. 468. Diacenic tetramethyl. 218. Diastase. 98. 
277, 230. Diazoamidobenzene, 387. Diazoamido compounds, 386. Diazobenzene, chloride, 382. Nitrate, 382. Sulfate, 332. Diazobenzene sulfonic acid, 397. 534. Diazo compounds, 381. Diazo compounds constitution of, 385. Diazo pseudocumene chloride, 537. Diazo toluene chloride, 383. 535. Diazoxylene chloride, 537. Dibasic acids electrolysis of 72, 81. Dibenzylamine 381. Dibromanthroquinone 479. Dibromethylbenzene 445. Dibromethylene 84. Dibromobenzenes, 330. Dibromohexahydrobenzene, 336. Dibromohexamethylene, 336. Dibromopropionic acid, 263. Dibromopyridine, 486. Dibromosuccinic acid, 247. 250. Dicarboxylic acids, 284, 436. Dichloroacetic acid, 166. Dichloracetone, asymmetrical, 134. Dichloracetone, symmetrical, 134, 252, 258. Dichloranthracene, 475. Dichloroethylene, 84. Dichlorobenzene, 313. Alpha-alpha-dichlorohydrin, 252, 257, 258. Alpha-beta Dichloronaphthalene, 463. Beta-dichloropropane, 131, 142. Alpha-beta-dichloropropionic acid, 258. Dicyanogen, 285. Diethylketone, 137. Diethylamine, 208. Diethylamine salts of 209. Diethyl nitrosamine 208. Diethyl phosphine 214. Diethyl phosphine hydriodide 215. Digallic acid 453. Dihexyl ketone 
137. Dihydric phenols, 399, 401, 410. Dihydrobenzene, 336. Dihydrobenzene tetrabromide, 336. Dihydroxyacetone, 272. Dihydroxyanthroquinones, 478, 481. Dihydroxyazobenzene, 534. Dihydroxybenzenes, 410. Dihydroxybenzoic acids, 452. Dihydroxynaphthalenes, 469. Dihydroxyphenanthrene, 483. Dihydroxyphthalophenone, 531. Dihydroxysuccinic acid, 247. Diisoamyl ether, 115. Diisobutyl ether, 115. Diisopropyl, 65. Diisopropyl ether, 115. Diisopropyl ketone, 137. Dimethyl carbonyl, 103. 105. Dimethyl ketone, 130, 137. Dimethyl acetic acid, 159. Dimethyl acetylene, 87. hydrochloride, 534. sulfonic acid, 536. Dimethyl amine, 211. Dimethyl aniline, 370, 378. Dimethyl arsine oxide, 217. Dimethyl benzidine, 391, 538. Dimethyl catechol, 411. Dimethyl ethylamine, 211. Dimethyl ethyl methane, 546. Dimethyl malonic acid, 244. Dimethyl phenylene diamines, 376. 585. 586. 589. Dimethyl pyridines, 491. Dinaphthols, 467. Dinitroalphanaphthol, 467. 438. Dinitroalphanaphthol disulfonic acid, potassium salt of, 467. Dinitrobenzene, 365. 366. Diolefines, 87. 88. Diphenic acid, 482, 483, 484. Diphenic anhydride, 484. Diphenyl, 
338, 350, 432, ketone, 351, 424, diphenylamine, 371, 379, diphenyl dicarboxylic acid, 482, diphenyl ethylene, 482, diphenyl iodonium hydroxide, 360, diphenyl iodonium iodate, 360, diphenyl methane, 351, 425, diphenyl metatolyl methane, 523, 526, dipples oil, 485, dipropyl argyl, 87, 314, dipropyl ether, 115, dipropyl ketone, 137, dipropyl amine, 204, disacryl, 262, distillation, 8, distillation in steam, 7, distillation of wood, 90, ditolyl, 482, dulcetol, 265, 270, Dutch liquid, 71, dyes and their application, 514, indican, 589, indigo blue, 421, 446, 539, carmine, 539, dying with, 519, Synthesis of 540. Indigo white 519, 539. Indigo disulfonic acid 539. Indigotin 539. Indoxyl 540. Indoxylic acid 540. Inulin, 270. Inverse substitution, 57. Inversion, 276. Invert sugar, 270, 276. Invertase, 100, 276. Iodocytic acids, 166, iodethane, 180, iodine, detection of, 16, iodine, estimation of, 27, iodine green, 627, 528, iodobenzene, 358, Iodobenzene dichloride, 359. Iodoform, 178. Iodoform reaction, 96. 
iodonitrobenzene, 367. Iodosobenzene, 359. Iodoxybenzene, 359. Isethionic acid, 513. Isoalcohols, 104. Isoamyl alcohol, 106. Isoamyl isovalerate, 193. Beta isoamyline, 78. Isobutaldehyde, 137. Isobutane, 61, 65, 67. Isobutyl alcohol, 104, 106. Isobutyl carbonyl, 104. Isobutylene, 78. Isobutyric acid, 159, 167. Isobutyrone, 137. Isocyanides, 294. Isohydrocarbons, 65. Isomerism, 64. Isonicotinic acid, 498. Isonitriles, 294. Isopentane, 63. Isophthalic acid, 439. Isopropyl alcohol, 105, 107, 131. Isopropyl bromide, 80. Isopropyl carbonyl, 104, 106. Isopropyl iodide, 181. Isopropyl acetic acid, 158. Isopropyl benzene, 349. Isopropyl benzoic acid, 349. Isoquinoline, 485, 496. Isosuccinic acid, 235, 244. Isothiocyanates, alkyl, 298. Isovaleraldehyde, 137. Isovaleric acid, 158, 159, 167. Kerosene, 70. Ketones, 130. 423. Ketones, condensation of 144. Ketones, oxidation of 144. Ketoxenes, 134. Kieldahl's method, 27. Kerner's method of determining constitution, 329. Lactic acid, 200, 231, 544, 
545. Lactic acid, salt salt, 232. Lactones, 580. Lactose, 159. 277. Lakes, 480. 518. Lard, 170. Laubenheimer's reaction, 484. Laudanum, 500. Lauric acid, 167. Laurone, 137. Lead ethyl, 223. Lebel and Van de Hoff's theory, 544. Lecithin, 512. Leucanoline, 523. 526. Leuca base, 520. Luca compound, 518. Luca malachite green, 521. Luca para rosanilene, 523, 524. Luca rosanilene, 523, 526. Levo acid. 251, 543, 558. Lavulinic acid, 200. Lavulose, 270. Liebermann's reaction, 209, 402. Light oil, 806. Light petroleum, 70. Ligroin, 70. Lutadines, 491. Magenta, 526. Malachite green, 521. Malic acid, 247. 558. Malik anhydride, 247. 558. Malic acid, 245. 250. 544. 545. 549. Malonic acid, 235. 239. Maltosazone, 277. Maltose, 98. 276. Mandelic acid, 458. Manitol, 265. 271. Manos, 269. Majaric acid, 160. Margarine, 173. Marsh gas, 53. 
Martius's Yellow, 538. Maconic Acid, 503. Melissal Alcohol, 109. Melting Point, 13. Mendius's Reaction, 205. Mercaptans, 187. Mercaptides, 187. Mercuric ethiodide, 222. Mercuric ethochloride, 222. Mercuric ethohydroxide, 223. Mercuric ethyl, 222. Mercetyl oxide, 133, 134. Mesetylene, 328, 333, 348. Mesetylenic acid, 328, 349. Mesotartaric acid, 251, 553, 153. Metochloral, 197 methoxybenzaldehyde 423 methoxybenzoic acids 409 Methoxyquinoline gamma carboxylic acid, 505. Methyl acetate, 193. Methyl alcohol, 89. 107. Methyl bromide, 177. 181. Methyl butyrate, 193. Methyl carbonyl, 94. Methyl chloride, 56. 91. 174. 181. Methyl cyanide, 289. 294. Methyl ether, 111. Methyl ethyl ether, 
115. Methyl hydrogen sulfate, 91. Methyl iodide, 177. 181. Methyl isonitrile, 294. Methyl isophthalate, 440. Methyl isopropyl ether, 116. Methyl methyl salicylate, 449. 451. Methyl nitrate, 183. Methyl nitrite, 184. Methyl orange, 536. Methyl oxalate, 90. 238. Methyl potassio salicylate, 449. Methyl propionate, 193. Methyl propyl ether, 116. Methyl salicylate, 449, 451. Methyl sulfate, 91. Methyl terephthalate, 440. Methyl acetamide, 136. Methyl acetylene, 87. Methyl L, 122. Methylamine, 211. Methyl aniline, 370, 378. Methylated spirit, 101. Methylates, 91. Methyl benzene, 844. Methyl catechol, 410. Methyl cinnamic acids, 444. Methyl cresols, 409. Methylene blue, 538. Methylene dichloride, 175. Methyl enotan, 272. Methyl ethyl, 60. Methyl ethyl carbonyl, 104. 106. Methyl ethyl ketone, 139. Methyl ethyl acetic acid, 158. 160. 545. Methyl ethyl amine, 211. Methyl ethylene, 78. Methyl isopropyl ketone, 137. Methyl isopropyl benzene, 349. Methyl morphine, 510. Methyl naphthalenes, 462. Methyl phosphine, 214. Methyl piperidine, 490. Methyl propyl, 61. Methyl propyl ketone, 
137. Methylpyridines, 491. Methylquinolone, 496. Methylsalicylic acid, 449, 451. Methylsuccinic acid, 214. Methylsulfonic acid, 184. Methyltheobromine, 510. Methyltriphenylmethane, 523. Methylviolet, 528. Middle oil, 306. 807. Milk sugar, 277. Mineral naphtha, 69. Mirbane, essence of, 365. Mixed amines, 211. Mixed anhydrides, 164. Mixed ethers, 115. Mixed ketones, 137. Molecular formula, 32. Molecular weight determination of 82. Molecular weight determination of by chemical methods 82. Molecular weight determination of by physical methods 36. Monocetine 256. Monobromopyridine 486. Monobromopyridine, 486. Monocarboxylic acids, 157. Monochloracetone, 134. Monochloranthracine, 475. Monoformin, 147. 260. Monohydric alcohols, 89. Monohydric phenols, 404. Monohydroxynaphthalenes, 486. Monoses, 266. 283. Mordants, 516. Morphine, 509. Methiodide, 509. Mucic acid, 270. Mustard oil, 298. Myristic acid, 167. Myrosin, 298. End of Organic Chemistry by W. H. Perkin and F. Stanley Kipping Selections from the Index Recording by Son of the Exiles Selections from the Letter G from The Sailor's Word Book This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Spiegel. 
Selections from the letter G, from the Sailor's Word Book, an alphabetical digest of nautical terms, including some more especially military and scientific, but useful to seamen, as well as archaisms of early voyagers, etc., by the late Admiral W. H. Smith, KSF, DCL, etc. Gab. A notch on the eccentric rod of a steam engine for fitting a pin in the gab lever to break the connection with the side valves. See Gabba. Gabar. Originally a river lighter, now a French storeship. Gabart, or Gabbert. A flat vessel with a long hatchway used in canals and rivers. Gabba. An old but vulgar term for the mouth. Gift of the gab, or glib gabbet. Facility and recklessness of assertion. Gabbock. A voracious dogfish which infests the herring fisheries in St. George's Channel. Gabelle. French. An excise tribute. Gabardine. An old name for a loose felt cloak or mantle. Gabbert. A Scotch lighter. See Gabbart. Gabonade. A parapet of gabions hastily thrown up. Gabions. Cylindrical baskets open at both ends, about three feet high and two feet in diameter, which, being placed on end and filled with earth, greatly facilitate the speedy formation of cover against an enemy's fire. They are much used for revertments in field works generally. Gabble, or gabool, a term in early voyagers for cable, thus, Soft sir said the gabble rope, Methink good ale is in your trope. Gablick, or gafflock, an old term for a crowbar. Gabby, a conceited simpleton. Gachupins, the name given in South America to European Spaniards. Gad, a goad, the point of a spear or pike. Gadyang, a coasting vessel of Cochin, China. Gaff. A spar used in ships to extend the heads of fore and aft sails, which are not set on stays. The foremost end of the gaff is termed the jaw. The outer part is called the peak. The jaw forms a semicircle and is secured in its position by a jaw rope passing round the mast. On it are strung several small wooden balls, called trucks, to lessen the friction on the mast when the sail is hoisting or lowering. To blow the gaff said of the revealing a plot or giving convicting evidence. Gaff halyards. See halyards. Gaff hook. In fishing, a strong iron hook set on a handle, supplementing the powers of the line and fish hook with heavy fish, in the same way that the landing net does with those of moderate size. Gaffle. A lever or stirrup for bending a crossbow. Gaff net. A peculiar net for fishing. Gaff topsail. A light triangular or quadrilateral sail, the head being extended on a small gaff which hoists on the topmast and the foot on the lower gaff. Gauge. The quantity of water a ship draws or the depth she is immersed. Gauge. Weather. When one ship is to windward of another, she is said to have the weather gauge of her or, if in the opposite position, the lee gauge. Gauge cocks. 
these are for ascertaining the height of the water in the boiler by means of three or more pipes having a cock to each gained day the twenty-four hours day or night gained by circumnavigating the globe to the eastward it is the result of sailing in the same direction as the earth revolves which shortens each day by four minutes for every degree sailed in the royal navy this run gives an additional day's pay to a ship's crew gain the wind two to arrive on the weather side of some other vessel in sight when both are plying to windward garefish a name on our northern coasts for the porpoise garefowl the name of the great auk alca impenis see auk garrick a gaelic name for the comorant galaxy the name of the milky way see via lactea Galeus, see Gallius. Gale of wind, implies what on shore is called a storm, more particularly termed a hard gale or strong gale, number of force, ten. A stiff gale is the diminutive of the preceding, but stronger than a breeze. A fresh gale is a still further diminutive, and not too strong for a ship to carry single-reefed topsails when close-hauled. A top-gallant gale, if a ship can carry her topgallant sails, to gale away, to go free. Galeopus, an ancient warship with a prow resembling the beak of a swordfish. Galtia, see Gurite. Gaul, see Windgall. Gallants, all flags borne on the mizzenmast were so designated. Gallum whale, the largest whale which visits the Hebrides. Galled, the result of friction, to prevent which it is usual to cover, with skins, mats, or canvas, the places most exposed to it. See service. Galleon, or galleon, a name formerly given to ships of war furnished with three or four batteries of cannon. It is now retained only by the Spaniards, and applied to the largest size of their merchant ships employed in West India and Veracruz voyages. The Portuguese also have ships trading to India and the Brazils, nearly resembling the galleons, and called caragus, see carrick. Galliot, or galliot. A small galley designed only for chase, carrying generally but one mast, with sixteen or twenty oars. All the seamen on board act as soldiers, and each has a musket by him ready for use on quitting his oar. Also, a Dutch or Flemish vessel for cargoes, with very rounded ribs and flattish bottom, with a mizzenmast stepped far aft, carrying a square mainsail and main topsail, a forestay to the mainmast, there being no foremast, with forestay sail and jibs. Some also call the bomb catches galliots, see scampavia. Gallery, a balcony projecting from the admiral's or captain's cabin. It is usually decorated with a balustrade, and extends from one side of the ship to the other. The roof is formed by a sort of vault, termed a cove, which is frequently ornamented with carving. See stern, also quarter-gallery. Gallery of a mine. The passage of horizontal communication, as distinguished from the shaft or vertical descent, made underground by military miners to reach the required position for lodging the charge, etc., it averages four and a half feet high by three feet wide. Gallery ladder, synonymous with stern ladder. Galley, 
a low flat-built vessel with one deck and propelled by sails and oars particularly in the mediterranean the largest sort called galeasis were formerly employed by the venetians they were about one hundred and sixty feet long above and one hundred and thirty by the keel thirty wide and twenty length of stern post they were furnished with three masts and thirty banks of oars each bank containing two oars and every oar managed by half a dozen slaves chained to them there are also half galleys and quarter galleys but found by experience to be of little utility except in fine weather they generally hug the shore only sometimes venturing out to sea for a summer cruise also an open boat rowing six or eight oars and used on the river thames by custom-house officers and formerly by press-gangs hence the names custom-house galley press-galley etc also a clincher-built fast-rowing boat rather larger than a gig appropriated in a man-of-war for the use of the captain the galley or galley is also the name of the ship's hearth or kitchen being the place where the grates are put up and the victuals cooked in small merchantmen it is called the caboose and is generally abaft the forecastle or forepart of the ship galley arches spacious and well-built structures in many of the mediterranean ports for the reception and security of galleys galley foist or fust the lord mayor's barge and other vessels for holidays see fust galley growlers idle grumblers and sulkers from whom discontent and mutiny generally derive their origin hence galley packets news before the mail arrives galley noose the figurehead galley packet an unfounded rumour see galley growlers galley pepper the soot and ashes which accidentally drop into victuals in cooking galley slang the neological barbarisms foisted into sea language galley slave a person condemned to work at the oar on board a galley and chained to the deck galley stoker a lazy skulker galley trough see gertertroch gallius a heavy low-built vessel of burden not to be confined with galley for even shakespeare in the taming of the shrew makes tranio say my father hath no less than three great argoses besides two galleuses and twelve tight galleys gallied the state of a whale when he is seriously alarmed galligaskins wide hose or breeches formerly worn by seamen also called petticoat trousers p penalesi in his supplication to the devil says some galley gascoins or shipmen's hose like the anabaptists etc galling fire a sustained discharge of cannon or small arms which by its execution greatly annoys the enemy galabats armed rowboats of india smaller than grab generally fifty to seventy tons galoon gold lace french galon spanish galon galopper a small gun used by the indians easy to draw by one horse gallow glasses formerly a heavy-armed body of foot more recently applied to irish infantry soldiers gallows the cross pieces on the small bits at the main and fore hatchways in flush-decked vessels for stowing away the booms and spars over the boats also termed galouses gallow tops 
gallow bits and gallow stanchions the word is used colloquially for archness as well as for notoriously bad characters galls veins of land through which the water oozes gall wind see wind gall galley gun a kind of culverin galoot an awkward soldier from the russian galoot or slave a sobriquet for the young or green marine galore plenty abundance gambeson a quilted doublet formerly worn under armour to prevent its chafing game leg a lame limb but not so bad as to be unfit for duty gammon too to pass the lashings of the bowsprit gammoning seven or eight turns of a rope lashing passed alternately over the bowsprit and through a large hole in the cutwater the better to support the stays of the foremast after all the turns are drawn as firm as possible the two opposite are braced together under the bowsprit by a frapping gammoning lashing fashion etc has a peculiar seamanlike meaning the gammoning turns are passed from the standing part or bolt forward over the bowsprit aft through the knee forward making a cross lashing it was the essence of a seaman's ability and only the forecastle men under the boatswain executed it now galvanized chain is more commonly used than rope for gammoning gammoning hole a mortise opening cut through the knee of the head between the cheeks through which the gammoning is passed gammon knee a knee timber frayed and bolted to the stem a little below the bowsprit gammon plate an iron plate bolted to the stem of some vessels for the purpose of supporting the gammoning of the bowsprit gammon shackle a sort of triangular ring formed on the end of a gammon plate for the gammoning lashing or chain to be made fast to gand fluke a name of the sorry pike scomborisoc saris gang a detachment being a selected number of a ship's crew appointed on any particular service and commanded by an officer suitable to the occasion gangboard the narrow platform within the side next the gunwale connecting the quarter-deck to the forecastle also a plank with several cleats or steps nailed to it to prevent slipping for the convenience of walking on to or out of a boat upon the shore where the water is shallow gang casks small barrels used for bringing water on board in boats somewhat larger than breakers and usually containing thirty-two gallons gangway the platform on each side of the skid beams leading from the quarter-deck to the forecastle and peculiar to deep-waisted ships for the convenience of walking expeditiously fore and aft it is fenced on the outside by iron stations and ropes or rails and in vessels of war with a netting in which part of the hammocks are stored in merchant ships it is frequently called the gang-board also that part of a ship's side and opening in her bulwarks by which persons enter and depart provided with a sufficient number of steps or cleats nailed upon the ship's side nearly as low as the surface of the water and sometimes furnished with a railed accommodation ladder projecting from the ship's side and secured by iron braces also narrow passages left in the hold when a ship is laden in order to enter any particular place as occasion may require or stop a leak also it implies a thoroughfare of any kind to bring to the gangway to punish a seaman by seizing him up to a grating there to undergo a flogging gannerit a sort of gull gannet 
the sula basana or solan goose a large sea-bird of the family pelicanidae common on the scottish coasts gany wedge a thick wooden wedge used in splitting timber gantan an indian commercial measure of which seventeen make a baruth gantline synonymous with girt line which see gantlope or gantlope commonly pronounced gauntlet a race which a criminal was sentenced to run in the navy or army for any heinous offence the ship's crew or a certain division of soldiers were disposed in two rows face to face each provided with a knotted cord or nittle with which they severely struck the delinquent as he ran between them stripped down to the waist this was repeated according to the sentence but seldom beyond three times and constituted running the gauntlet gantry or gantrel a wooden stand for a barrel gansey corrupted from guernsey see jersey gap a chasm in the land which when near is useful as a landmark gape the principal crevice or crack in shaken timber the seams gape or let in water garavances the old term for calavances which see garbel a word synonymous with garboard which see garbling the mixing of rubbish with a cargo stowed in bulk garboard strake or sand streak the first range of planks laid upon a ship's bottom next to the keel into which it is rabbited and into the stem and stern posts at the end guard brace anglo-norman for armor for the arm gare see garefowl also the anglo-saxon for ready see yare garret a watch-tower garfangle an archaic term for an eel-spear garfish the bologna vulgaris or bill-fish the bones of which are green also called the guard-fish but it is from the anglo-saxon gar a weapon gargani the curaculadula circea a small species of duck allied to the teal garland a collar of ropes formerly wound around the head of the mast to keep the shrouds from chafing also a strap lashed to a spar when hoisting it in also a large rope grommet to place shot on in deck also in shore batteries a band whether of iron or stone to retain shot together in their appointed place also the ring in a target in which the mark is set also a wreath made by crossing three small hoops and covering them with silk and ribbons hoisted to the main topgallant stay of a ship on the day of the captain's wedding but on a seaman's wedding to the appropriate mast to which he is stationed also a sort of cabbage net whose opening is extended by a hoop and used by sailors to contain their day's provisions being hung up to the beams within their berth safe from cats rats ants and cockroaches garnet a sort of purchase fixed to the mainstay of a merchant ship and used for hoisting the cargo in and out at the time of loading and delivering her a whip clue garnet see clue and clue garnets garney a term in the fisheries for the fins sounds and tongues of the codfish garnish profuse decoration of a ship's head stern and quarters 
also money which pressed men in tenders and receiving ships extract from each other according to priority gar an oozy vegetable substance which grows on ships bottoms garret or garita a watch-tower in a fortification an old term garrison a military force guarding a town or fortress a term for the place itself also for the state of guard there maintained garrison guns these are more powerful than those intended for the field and formerly nearly coincided with naval guns but now the introduction of armor plating afloat leads to furnished coast batteries with the heaviest guns of all garrison orders those given out by the commandant of a garrison garuka a fishing craft of the gulf of persia garters a slang term for the ship's irons or bilbos garthman one who plies at a fish garth but is prohibited by statute from destroying the fry of fish garvey a name on our northern shores for the sprat gasket a cord or piece of plated stuff to secure furled sails to the yard by wrapping it three or four times round both the turns being at a competent distance from each other burnt gasket ties up the bunt of a sail and should consequently be the strongest it is sometimes made in a peculiar net form in some ships they have given place to beckets double gaskets passing additional frapping lines round the yards in very stormy weather quarter gasket used only for large sails and is fastened about halfway out upon the yard which part is called the quarter yard arm gasket used for smaller sails the end is made fast to the yard arm and serves to bind the sail as far as the quarter gasket on large yards but extends quite into the bunt of small sails gas pipe a term jocularly applied to the newly introduced breech-loading rifle gat a swashway or channel among shoals gate the old name for landing places as dowgate and billingsgate also in cliffs as kingsgate margate and ramsgate those in greece and italy are called scala also a flood sluice or watergate gate or seagate when two ships are thrown on board one another by a wave they are said to be in a seagate gather aft a sheet two to pull it in by hauling in slack gather way two to begin to feel the impulse of the wind in the sails so as to obey the helm gathlin a name for the north polar star two gaelic words signifying ray and moisture in allusion to its subdued brightness gat a gate or channel a term used on the flemish coast and in the baltic the heligat of new york has become hellgate galbline a rope leading from the martingale inboard the same as back rope gauge see gauge gauge an instrument for measuring shot wads etc for round shot there are two kinds viz the high gauge a cylinder through which the shot must pass and the low gauge a ring through which it must not pass gauge cocks a neat apparatus for ascertaining the height of the water in a steamer's boiler gauge rod a graduated iron for sounding the pump well gonet the syngathnus acus or sea needle or pipefish gauntlet see girt line also 
a rope round the ship to the lower yard-arms for drying scrubbed hammocks of old the term denoted the armed knight's iron glove see gantlope for running the gauntlet gauntry the stand for a water or beer cask gaunts the great crested greave in lincolnshire got or got in the east indies a landing-place and also a chain of hills as the western gauts on the mysore coast gavelock an iron crow of old a pike thus in arthur and merlin gavelocks also thick flow so gnats ichil avow gaver a cornish name for the sea crayfish gaw a southern term for a boat pole godney the dragnet or yellow gurnard colianimus lyra gaga a lubberly simpleton gawky a half-witted awkward youth also the shell called horse-cockle gawlin a small sea-fowl which the natives of the western isles of scotland trust in as a prognosticator of the weather gauntry see gantry gaupus a stupid idle fellow gawry the name for the red gurnard trigla cuculus gazons french sods of earth or turf cut in wedge-shaped form to line the parapet and face the outside of works gazetta the name of a small coin in the adriatic and levant it was the price of the first venetian newspaper and thereby gave the name to those publications in the greek islands the word is used for ancient coins g c b the initials for the grand cross of the most honourable and military order of the bath gear the anglo-saxon gira clothing a general name for the rigging of any particular spar or sail and in or out of gear implies anything being fit or unfit for use gearing a complication of wheels and pinions or of shafts and pulleys etc gears see jeers gee too to suit or fit as that will just gee jellywat an old term for a captain's boat the original of jolly-boat see captain Doughton's voyage to india in sixteen fourteen where she was sent to take the soundings within the sands general the commander of an army the military rank corresponding to the naval one of admiral the title includes all officers above colonels ascending with qualifying prefixes as brigadier-general major-general lieutenant-general to general above which there is nothing save the exceptional rank of field-marshal and of captain-general or commander-in-chief of the land forces of the united kingdom general average a claim made upon the owners of a ship and her cargo where the property of one or more has been sacrificed for the good of the whole general brizo see brizo generalissimo the supreme commander of a combined force or of several armies in the field general officers all those above the rank of a colonel general orders the orders issued by the commander-in-chief of the forces general ship where persons unconnected with each other load goods on board or in contradistinction to a chartered ship geneva print an allusion to the spiritous liquor so called and if you meet an officer preaching of sobriety unless he read it in geneva print lay him by the heels massinger genioliere french 
that part of a battery which remains above the platform and under the gun after the opening of the embrasure of course a knee strap gentle a maggot or grub used as bait by anglers gentle gale in which a ship carries royals and flying kites force four gentlemen the messmates of the gun-room or cockpit as mates shipmates clerks and cadets geocentric as viewed from the centre of the earth geography a beverage made by seamen of burnt biscuit boiled in water geographical position see position geographical georgium Sidus, the planet discovered by sir w herschel was so named at first but astronomers adopted uranus instead as safer to keep in the neutral ground of mythology girtle trock the salmo alpinus red char or galley trough garrick a coal fish in its first year garret a samlet or par garrick a cornish name for sea pike garin a cant name for the sea trout gasern anglo-norman for battle axe gesling a meeting of the members of the clink ports at romney get afloat pulling out a grounded boat get a pull the order to haul in more rope or tackle got see got gee the substitute for butter served out to ship's companies in the indian station ghost a false image in the lens of an instrument grime sail the old term for a smoke sail gib a forelock gib the beak or hooked upper lip of a male salmon gibbous the form of a planet's disk extending a semicircle but less than a circle gib fish a northern name for the male of the salmon gibraltar gin originally devised there for working guns under a low roof see gin giddick a name on our northern coasts for the sand launce or sand eel amodites tobianus giffet a jewish corruption of the spanish spoken at gibraltar and the seaports gift rope synonymous with guest rope a rope for boats at the guest warp boom gig a light narrow galley or ship's boat clincher built and adapted for expedition either by rowing or sailing the latter ticklish at times gildee a name on the scottish isles for morhua barbata or whiting pout gilgai a guy for tracing up or bearing a broom or derrick often applied to inefficient guys gill a ravine down the surface of a cliff or rivulet through a ravine the name is often applied to the valley itself giller a horsehair fishing line gills small hackles for drying hemp gilpy between man and boy gilsey a common misnomer for grizzle which see gilt a cant but old term for money on which shakespeare henry v act two scene one committed a well-known pun have for the guilt of france o oh, guilt indeed gilt head or gilt pole the sparus orata a fish of the european and american seas with a golden mark between the eyes see sea dow gimbals 
two concentric brass rings having their axles at right angles by which a sea compass is suspended in its box so as to counteract the effect of the ship's motion sea compass also used for the chronometers gimbleting the action of turning the anchor round on its fluke so that the motion of the stock appears similar to that of the handle of a gimlet when it is employed to bore a hole to turn anything round on its end gimlet eye a penetrating gaze which sees through a deal plank gimart see gimret gimel any disposition of rings as links device of machinery see gimbals gin a small iron cruciform frame having a swivel hook furnished with an iron sheave to serve as a pulley for the use of chain in discharging cargo and other purposes ginadu see jergado ginjaw a long-barrelled firearm throwing a ball from one quarter to one half pound used throughout the east especially in china made to load at the breech with a movable chamber see also jingle gingerbread hatches luxurious quarters gingerbread hatches on shore gingerbread work profusely carved decorations of a ship gingerly spruce and smart but somewhat affected in movement ginolin catching fish by the hand tickling them ginners or ginnels the gills of fish ginseng a chinese root formerly highly prized for its restorative virtues and greatly valued among the items of a cargo it is now almost out of the materia medica gip two to take the entrails out of fishes girandole any whirling firework gird two to bind used formerly for striking a blow girdle an additional planking over the whales or bends also a frapping for girding a ship girt the situation of a ship which is moored so taut by her cables extending from the hawse to two distinct anchors as to be prevented from swinging to the wind or tide the ship thus circumstanced endeavours to swing but her side bears upon one of the cables and interrupts her in the act of traversing in this position she must ride with her broadside or stern to the wind or current till one or both of the cables are slackened so as to sink under the keel after which the ship will readily yield to the effect of the wind or current and turn her head thither girt line a whip purchase consisting of a rope passing through a single block on the head of a lower mast to hoist up the rigging thereof and the persons employed to place it the girt line is therefore the first rope employed to rig a ship sometimes miscalled gant line gisarms an archaic term for a halbert or hand axe give a spell to intermit or relieve work see spell give chase too to make sail in pursuit of a stranger give her so-and-so the direction of the officer of the watch to the midshipman reporting the rate of sailing by the log and which requires correction in the judgment of that officer from winds etc before marking on the log-book give her sheet the order to ease off give her rope give way the order to a boat's crew to renew rowing or to increase their exertions if they were already rowing to hang on the oars give way together so that the oars all may dip and rise together whereby the force is concentrated 
Give way with a will. Pull heartily together. Giving. The surging of a seizing. New rope stretching to the strain. Glasses. In a fortification, that smooth earthen slope outside the ditch which descends to a country, affording a secure parapet to the covered way, and exposing always a convenient surface to the fire of the place. Glandine. A very early designation of the sea onion. Glare. A broadsword or falchion fixed on a pike. Glance. See northern glance. Also, a name for anthracite coal. Glassic. The Gaelic name of an edible seaweed of our northern isles. Glass. The usual appellation for a telescope. See the old sea song of Lord Howard's capture of Barton the Pirate. Also, the familiar term for a barometer. Glass is also used in the plural to denote time glass on the duration of any action, as they fought yard arm and yard arm three glasses, i.e., three half hours. To flog or sweat the half hour glass. Turn the sand glass before the sand has quite run out, and thus gain a few minutes in each half hour to make the watch too short. Half minute and quarter minute glasses, used to ascertain the rate of a ship's velocity measured by the log. They should be occasionally compared with a good stopwatch. Night glass, a telescope adapted for viewing objects at night. Glass clear, is the sand out of the upper part? Asked previously to turning it on throwing the log. Glassock, a coast name for the say, seeth, or coalfish. Glaive, a light hand dart, also a sword blade fixed on the end of a pole. Glamour, a two handed sword. See claymore. Glazed powder, gunpowder of which the grains, by friction against one another in a barrel worked for the purpose, have acquired a fine polish sometimes promoted by a minute application of black lead, reputed to be very slightly weaker than the original and somewhat less liable to deterioration. Glen, an Anglo-Saxon term denoting a dale or deep valley, still in use for a ravine. Glent, too, to turn aside or quit the original direction, as a shot does from accidentally impinging on a hard substance. Glib gabbit, smooth and ready speech. Glim, a light, familiarly used for the eyes. Douse the glim, put out the light. Gloaming, the twilight. Also, a gloomy dull state of sky. Globe rangers, a subsequent for the Royal Marines. Globular sailing, a general designation for all the methods on which the rules of computation are founded, on the hypothesis that the earth is a sphere, including great circle sailing. Glog, the Manx, or term, which still denotes the swell or rolling of the sea after a storm. Gloom stove, formerly for drying powder at a temperature of about 140 degrees, being an iron vessel in a room heated from outside, but steam pipes are now substituted. Glute, see galute. Glower, too, to stare or look intently. Glue, see marine glue. Glum, as applied to the weather, overcast and gloomy, Socially, it is a grievous look. Glut, a piece of wood applied as a fulcrum to a lever power. Also, a bit of canvas sewed into the center of a sail near the head, with an eyelet hole in the middle for the bunt jigger, or becket, to go through. Glut used to prevent slipping, as sand and nippers glut the messenger. 
the fall of a tackle drawn across the sheaves by which it is choked or glutted junks of rope interposed between the messenger and the whelps of the capstan glin a deep valley with convex sides see kim gnarled knotty set of timber gnar an old term for hard knot in a tree hence shakespeare's unwedgeable and gnarled oak knoll a round hillock see knoll nomen the hand style of a dial go a word sometimes given when all is ready for the launch of a vessel from the stocks go ahead or go in the order to the engineer in a steamer go ashore too to land on leave go ashores the seaman's best dress go barto a large and ravenous fish of our early voyagers probably a shark gobog a gaelic name for the dogfish gobdu a manx term for a mussel gobison gambison quilted dress worn under the habergeon goblachan a gaelic name for the par or samlet gobline see gobline goban an english name for the whiting gobstick a horn or wooden spoon go by stratagem to give her the go by is to escape by deceiving gobi a name of the gungeon which see it was erroneously applied to whitebait god we retain the anglo-saxon word to designate the almighty signifying good to do good doing good and to benefit terms such as our classic borrowings cannot pretend to godenda an offensive weapon of our early times being a pole-axe with a spike at its end go down the name given to storehouses and magazines in the east indies godsend an unexpected relief or prize but records denote by the term vessels and goods driven on shore go a creek smaller than a vaux golette french a schooner also a sloop of war gogar a serrated worm used in the north for fishing bait goglet an earthen vase or bottle for holding water golier the gaelic for sea-birds of the hebrides said to come ashore only in january going about tacking ship going free when the bowlines are slackened or sailing with the wind abeam going large sailing off the wind going through the fleet a cruel punishment long happily abolished the victim was sentenced to receive a certain portion of the flogging alongside the various ships towed in a launch by a boat supplied from each vessel the drummers beating the rogues march goldeny a name for the yellow gurnard among the northern fishermen goldfish the trivial name of the cyprinus oratus one of the most superb of the finny tribe it was originally brought from china but is now generally naturalized in europe gold mohur a well-known current coin in the east indies varying a little in value at each presidency but averaging fifteen rupees or thirty shillings goal an old northern word for a stream or a sluice golette a shirt of mail formerly worn by foot soldiers also a french sloop of war spelled golette gomer a particular form of chamber in ordnance consisting in a conical narrowing of the bore towards its inner end 
it was first devised for the service of mortars and named after the inventor gomer in the late wars gomir french the cable of a galley gondola a light pleasure barge universally used on the canals of venice generally propelled by one man standing on the stern with one powerful oar though the larger kinds have more rowers the middle-sized gondolas are upwards of thirty feet long and four broad with a well-furnished cabin amidships though exclusively black as restricted by law they always rise at each end to a very sharp point of about the height of a man's breast the stem is always surmounted by the pharaoh a bright iron beak or cleaver of one uniform shape seemingly derived from the ancient romans being the rustique tridentibus of virgil as may be seen in many of hadron's large brass medals the form of the gondola in the water is traced back till its origin is lost in antiquity yet like that of the turkish cakes embodies the principles of the wave-line theory the latest effort of modern shipbuilding science also a passage boat of six or eight oars used on other parts of the coast of italy gondolier a man who works or navigates a gondola gone carried away the hoster or cable is gone parted broken gone goose a ship deserted or given up in despair in extremis gone fanon french formerly a cavalry banneret corrupted from the gonfalone of the italians gong a kind of chinese cymbal with a powerful and sonorous tone produced by the vibrations of its metal consisting mainly of copper and tutanag or zinc it is used by some vessels instead of a bell a companion of sir james lancaster in sixteen o five reverently states that it makes a most hellish sound gonga a general name for a river in india whence comes ganges good at all points practical in every particular good conduct badge marked by a chevron on the lower part of the sleeve granted by the admiralty and carrying a slight increase in pay to petty officers seamen and marines one of a similar nature is used in the army good men the designation of the able hard-working and willing seamen good shoaling and approach to the shore by very gradual soundings goal an old term for a breach in a sea-bank goosander the mergus merganser a northern sea-fowl allied to the duck with a straight narrow and serrated bill hooked at the point gooseneck a curved iron fitted outside the after chains to receive a spare spar properly the swinging boom a davit also a sort of iron hook fitted on the inner end of a boom and introduced into a clamp of iron or eye-bolt which encircles the mast or is fitted to some other place in the ship so that it may be unhooked at pleasure it is used for various purposes especially for guest warps and swinging booms of all descriptions goose wings of a sail the situation of a course when the blunt lines and lee clue are hauled up and the weather clue down the clues or lower corners of a ship's mainsail or foresail when the middle part is furled or tied up to the yard the term is also applied to the fore and mainsails of a schooner or other two-masted fore and aft vessel when running before the wind she has these sails set on opposite sides goose without gravy a severe starting so called because no blood followed its infliction gorab see grab gourd 
an archaism denoting a deep hole in the river bores angular pieces of plank inserted to fill up a vessel's planking at any part requiring it also the angles at one or both ends of such claws as increase the breadth or depth of a sail see goring cloth gorge the upper and narrowest part of a transverse valley usually containing the upper bed of a torrent also in fortification a line joining the inner extremities of a work gorge hook two hooks separated by a piece of lead for the taking of pike or other voracious fish gorget in former times and still amongst foreign troops a gilt badge of a crescent shape suspended from the neck and hanging on the breast worn by officers on duty goring or goring cloth that part of the skirts of a sail cut on the bias where it gradually widens from the upper part down to the clues see sail gormaw a coast name for the cormorant gorse heath or furs for breaming a vessel's bottom go slow the order to the engineer to cut off steam without stopping the play of the engine gossoon a silly awkward lout goat see gutter gouging in shipbuilding see snail creeping also a cruel practice in one or two american states now extremely rare in which a man's eye was squeezed out by his rival's thumbnail the fingers being entangled in the hair for the necessary purchase gougings a synonym for gudgeons which see gaukmi one of the names in the north for the grey gurnard gallet any narrow entrance to a creek or harbour as the gauleta at tunis gowries the garbage of salmon government generally means the constitution of our country as exercised under the legislature of king or queen lords and commons governor an officer placed by royal commission in command of a fortress town or colony governors are also appointed to institutions hospitals and other establishments also a revolving bifurcate pendulum with two iron balls whose centrifugal divergence equalizes the motion of the steam engine Gow an old northern term for the gull gaudy the cleonymus lyra dragonet or chanticleer gauk the cuckoo but also used for a stupid good-natured fellow gauk storm late vernal equinoctial gales contemporary with the gauk or cuckoo gout or goat a limited passage for water goiler a small sea-bird held to precede a storm hence seamen call them malafiges arctic gull grab the large coasting vessel of india generally with two masts and of one hundred and fifty to three hundred tons to grab in familiar language to catch or snatch at anything with violence grabble too to endeavour to hook a sunk article to catch fish by hand in a brook grab service country vessels first employed by the bombay government against the pirates afterwards erected into the bombay marine grace see act of grace grade a degree of rank a step in order or dignity grafting an ornamental weaving of fine yarns etc over the strop of a block or applied to the tapered ends of the ropes and termed pointing grain of timber in a transverse section of a tree two different grains are seen those running in a circular manner are called the silver grain the others radiate and are called bastard grain 
grain is also a whirlwind not unfrequent in normandy mixed with rain but seldom continues above a quarter of an hour they may be foreseen and while they last the sea is very turbulent they may return several times in the same day a dead calm succeeding end of selections from the letter g from the sailor's word book by admiral w h smith the first earl of shaftesbury from the encyclopedia britannica eleventh edition this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bev Stevens Shaftesbury, Anthony Ashley Cooper, 1st Earl of, 1621-1683, son of Sir John Cooper of Rockbourne, in Hampshire, and of Anne, the only child of Sir Anthony Ashley, baronet and was born at Wimborne, St. Giles, Dorset, on the 22nd of July, 1621. His parents died before he was ten years of age, and he inherited extensive estates in Hampshire, Wiltshire, Dorsetshire, and Somersetshire, much reduced, however, by litigation in Chancery. He lived for some time with Sir Daniel Norton, one of his trustees, at Southwick, and upon his death in 1635 with Mr. Tooker, an uncle by marriage, at Salisbury. In 1637 he went as a gentleman commoner to Exeter College, Oxford, where he remained about a year no record of his studies is to be found but he has left an amusing account of his part in the wilder doings of the university life of that day in which in spite of his small stature he was recognized by his fellows as their leader at the age of eighteen on the twenty fifth of february sixteen thirty nine he married margaret daughter of lord coventry with whom he and his wife lived at durham house in the strand and at cannonbury house in islington in march sixteen forty though still a minor he was elected for tewkesbury and sat in the parliament which met on the thirteenth of april but appears to have taken no active part in its proceedings in 1640 Lord Coventry died, and Cooper then lived with his brother-in-law at Dorchester House in Covent Garden. For the long Parliament, which met on the 3rd of November, 1640, he was elected for Downton in Wiltshire. But the return was disputed, and he did not take his seat. His election not being declared valid, until the last days of the rump he was present as a spectator at the setting up of the king's standard at nottingham on the twenty fifth of august sixteen forty two and in sixteen forty three 
he appeared openly on charles's side in dorsetshire where he raised at his own expense a regiment of foot and a troop of horse of both of which he took the command he was also appointed governor of weymouth sheriff of dorsetshire for the king and president of the king's council of war in the county in the beginning of january sixteen forty four however for reasons which are variously reported by himself and clarendon he resigned his governorship and commissions and went over to the parliament he appeared on the sixth of march before the standing committee of the two houses to explain his conduct when he stated that he had come over because he saw danger to the protestant religion in the king's service and expressed his willingness to take the covenant in july sixteen forty four he went to dorsetshire on military service and on the third of august received a commission as field marshal general he assisted at the taking of wareham and shortly afterwards compounded for his estates by a fine of five hundred pounds from which however he was afterwards relieved by cromwell on the twenty fifth of october he was made commander-in-chief in dorsetshire and in november he took by storm abbotsbury the house of sir john strangeways an affair in which he appears to have shown considerable personal gallantry in december he relieved taunton his military service terminated at the time of the self-denying ordinance in sixteen forty five he had associated himself with the presbyterian faction and naturally enough was not included in the new model for the next seven or eight years he lived in comparative privacy he was high sheriff of wiltshire during sixteen forty seven and displayed much vigour in this office upon the execution of charles cooper took the engagement and was a commissioner to administer it in dorsetshire on the twenty fifth of april sixteen fifty he married lady frances cecil sister of the earl of essex his first wife having died in the previous year leaving no family in sixteen fifty one a son was born to him who died in childhood and on the sixteenth of january sixteen fifty two another son named after himself who was his heir on the seventeenth of january he was named on the commission for law reform of which hale was the chief and on the seventeenth of march sixteen fifty three he was pardoned of all delinquency and thus at last made capable of sitting in parliament he sat for wiltshire in the barebones parliament of which he was a leading member and where he supported cromwell's views against the extreme section he was at once appointed on the council of thirty on the resignation of this parliament he became a member of the council of state named in the instrument 
in the first parliament elected under this instrument he sat for wiltshire having been elected also for poole and tewkesbury and was one of the commissioners for the ejection of unworthy ministers after the twenty eighth of december sixteen fifty four he left the privy council and henceforward is found with the presbyterians and republicans in opposition to cromwell his second wife had died during this year in sixteen fifty six he married a third who survived him margaret daughter of lord spencer niece of the earl of southampton and sister of the earl of sunderland who died at newbury by his three marriages he was thus connected with many of the leading politicians of charles the second's reign cooper was again elected for wiltshire for the parliament of sixteen fifty six but cromwell refused to allow him with many others of his opponents to sit he signed a letter of complaint with sixty-five excluded members to the speaker as also a remonstrance addressed to the people in the parliament which met on the twentieth of january sixteen fifty eight he took his seat and was active in opposition to the new constitution of the two houses he was also a leader of the opposition in richard cromwell's parliament especially on the matter of the limitation of the power of the protector and against the house of lords he was throughout these debates celebrated for the nervous and subtle oratory which made him so formidable in after days upon the replacing of the rump by the army after the breaking up of richard's parliament cooper endeavoured unsuccessfully to take his seat on the ground of his former disputed election for downton he was however elected on the council of state and was the only presbyterian in it he was at once accused by scott along with whitelock of corresponding with hyde this he solemnly denied after the rising in cheshire cooper was arrested in dorsetshire on a charge of corresponding with its leader booth but on the matter being investigated by the council he was unanimously acquitted in the disputes between lambert at the head of the military party and the rump in union with the council of state he supported the latter and upon the temporary supremacy of lambert's party worked indefatigably to restore the rump with monk's commissioners he with hasselrig had a fruitless conference but he assured monk of his cooperation and joined with eight others of the overthrown council of state in naming him commander-in-chief of the forces of england and scotland he was instrumental in securing the tower for the parliament and in obtaining the adhesion of admiral lawson and the fleet upon the restoration of the parliament on the twenty sixth of december 
cooper was one of the commissioners to command the army and on the second of january was made one of the new council of state on the seventh of january he took his seat on his election for downton in sixteen forty and was made colonel of fleetwood's regiment of horse he speedily secured the admission of the secluded members having meanwhile been in continual communication with monk was again one of the fresh council of state consisting entirely of friends of the restoration and accepted from monk a commission to be governor of the isle of wight and captain of a company of foot he now steadily pursued the design of the restoration but without holding any private correspondence with the king and only on terms similar to those proposed in sixteen forty eight to charles i at the isle of wight in the convention parliament he sat for wiltshire monk cut short these deliberations and forced on the restoration without condition cooper was one of the twelve commissioners who went to charles at breda to invite him to return on his journey he was upset from his carriage and the accident caused an internal abscess which was never cured cooper was at once placed on the privy council receiving also a formal pardon for former delinquencies his first duty was to examine the anabaptist prisoners in the tower in the prolonged discussions regarding the bill of indemnity he was instrumental in saving the life of hasselrig and opposed the clause compelling all officers who had served under cromwell to refund their salaries he himself never having had any he showed indeed none of the avaricious temper so common among the politicians of the time he was one of the commissioners for conducting the trials of the regicides but was himself vehemently fallen upon by prine for having acted with cromwell he was named on the council of plantations and on that of trade in the debate abolishing the court of wards he spoke like most landed proprietors in favour of laying the burden on the excise instead of on the land and on the question of the restoration of the bishops carried in the interests of the court an adjournment of the debate for three months at the coronation in april sixteen sixty one cooper had been made a peer as baron ashley of wimborne st giles in express recognition of his services at the restoration and on the meeting of the new parliament in may he was appointed chancellor of the exchequer and under treasurer aided no doubt by his connection with southampton he vehemently opposed the persecuting acts now passed the corporation act the uniformity bill against which he is said to have spoken three hundred times 
and the Militia Act. He is stated also to have influenced the King in issuing his dispensing declaration of the 26th of December, 1662, and he zealously supported a bill introduced for the purpose of confirming the declaration, rising thereby in favour and influence with Charles. He was himself the author of a treatise on tolerance. He was now recognised as one of the chief opponents of Clarendon and the high Anglican policy. On the breaking out of the Dutch War in 1664, he was made treasurer of the prizes, being accountable to the king alone for all sums received or spent. He was also one of the grantees of the province of Carolina and took a leading part in its management. It was at his request that Locke, in 1669, drew up a constitution for the new colony. In September 1665, the king unexpectedly paid him a visit at Wimborne. He opposed unsuccessfully the appropriation proviso introduced into the supply bill as hindering the due administration of finance, and this opposition seems to have brought about a reconciliation with Clarendon. In 1668, however, he supported a bill to appoint commissioners to examine the accounts of the Dutch War, though in the previous year he had opposed it. In accordance with his former action on all questions of religious toleration, he opposed the shameful Five Mile Act of 1665. In 1667, he supported the bill for prohibiting the importation of Irish cattle on the ground that it would lead to a great fall of rents in England. Ashley was himself a large landowner and moreover was opposed to Ormond who would have benefited by the importation. In all other questions of this kind, he shows himself far in advance of the economic fallacies of the day. His action led to an altercation with Ossory, the son of Ormond, in which Ossory used language for which he was compelled to apologize. On the death of Southampton, Ashley was placed on the commission of the Treasury, Clifford and William Coventry being his principal colleagues. He appears to have taken no part in the attempt to impeach Clarendon on a general charge of treason. The new administration was headed by Buckingham, in whose toleration and comprehension principles Ashley shared to the full. An able paper written by him to the king in support of these principles, on the ground especially of their advantage to trade, has been preserved. He accepts, however, from toleration, Roman Catholics and Fifth Monarchy men. 
his attention to all trade questions was close and constant he was a member of the council of trade and plantations appointed in 1670 and was its president from 1672 to 1676 the difficulty of the succession also occupied him and he cooperated thus early in the design of legitimizing monmouth as a rival to james in the intrigues which led to the infamous treaty to dover he had no part the treaty contained a clause by which charles was bound to declare himself a catholic and with the knowledge of this ashley as a staunch protestant could not be trusted in order to blind him and the other protestant members of the cabal a sham treaty was arranged in which this clause did not appear and it was not until a considerable while afterwards that he found out that he had been duped under this misunderstanding he signed the sham dover treaty on the thirty first of december sixteen seventy this treaty however was kept from public knowledge and ashley helped charles to hoodwink parliament by signing a similar treaty on the second of february sixteen seventy two which was laid before them as the only one in existence his approval of the attempt of the lords to alter a money bill led to the loss of the supply to charles and to the consequent displeasure of the king his support to the lord ruse act ascribed generally to his desire to ingratiate himself with charles was no doubt due in part to the fact that his son had married lord ruse's sister so far from advising the stop of the exchequer he opposed this bad measure the reasons which he left with the king for his opposition are extant the responsibility rests with clifford alone in the other great measure of the cabal ministry charles's declaration of indulgence he concurred he was now rewarded by being made earl of shaftesbury and baron cooper of paulet by a patent dated the twenty third of april sixteen seventy two it is stated too that he was offered but refused the lord treasurership on the seventeenth of november sixteen seventy two however he became lord chancellor bridgeman having been compelled to resign the seat as chancellor he issued writs for the election of thirty-six new members to fill vacancies caused during the long recess this though grounded upon precedent was open to suspicion as an attempt to fortify charles and was attacked by an angry house of commons which met on the fourth of february sixteen seventy three the writs were cancelled and the principle was established that the issuing of writs rested with the house itself 
it was at the opening of parliament that shaftesbury made his celebrated delenda est cartago speech against holland in which he urged the second dutch war on the ground of the necessity of destroying so formidable a commercial rival to england excused the stop of the exchequer which he had opposed and vindicated the declaration of indulgence on the eighth of march he announced to parliament that the declaration had been cancelled though he did his best to induce charles to remain firm for affixing the great seal to this declaration he was threatened with impeachment by the commons the test act was now brought forward and shaftesbury who appears to have heard how he had been duped in sixteen seventy supported it with the object probably of thereby getting rid of clifford he now began to be regarded as the chief upholder of protestantism in the ministry he lost favour with charles and on sunday the ninth of september sixteen seventy three was dismissed from the chancellorship among the reasons for this dismissal is probably the fact that he opposed grants to the king's mistresses he had been accused of vanity and ostentation in his office but his reputation for ability and integrity as a judge was high even with his enemies charles soon regretted the loss of shaftesbury and endeavoured as did also louis to induce him to return but in vain he preferred now to become the great popular leader against all the measures of the court and may be regarded as the intellectual chief of the opposition at the meeting of parliament on the eighth of january sixteen seventy four he carried a motion for a proclamation banishing catholics to a distance of ten miles from london during the whole session he organized and directed the opposition in their attacks on the king's ministers on the nineteenth of may he was dismissed from the privy council and ordered to leave london he retired to wimborne and urged upon his parliamentary followers the necessity of securing a new parliament he was in the house of lords however in sixteen seventy five when danby brought forward his famous non-resisting test bill and headed the opposition which was carried on for seventeen days distinguishing himself says burnet more in this session than ever before the bill was shelved a prorogation having taken place in consequence of a quarrel between the two houses supposed to have been purposely got up by shaftesbury in which he supported the right of the lords to hear appeal cases even where the defendant was a member of the lower house parliament was prorogued for fifteen months until the fifteenth of february sixteen seventy seven 
and it was determined by the opposition to attack its existence on the ground that a prorogation for more than a year was illegal in this matter the opposition were in the wrong and by attacking the parliament discredited themselves the result was that shaftesbury buckingham wharton and salisbury were sent to the tower in june shaftesbury applied for a writ of habeas corpus but could get no release until the twenty sixth of february sixteen seventy eight after his letter and three petitions to the king being brought before the bar of the house of lords he made submission as to his conduct in declaring parliament dissolved by the prorogation and in violating the lord's privileges by bringing a habeas corpus in the king's bench the breaking out of the popish terror in sixteen seventy eight marks the worst part of shaftesbury's career that so clear-headed a man could have credited the lies of oates and the other perjurers is beyond belief and the manner in which he excited baseless alarms and encouraged fanatic cruelty for nothing but party advantage is without excuse on the second of november he opened the great attack by proposing an address declaring the necessity for the king's dismissing james from his council under his advice the opposition now made an alliance with louis whereby the french king promised to help them to ruin danby on condition that they would compel charles by stopping the supplies to make peace with france doing thus a grave injury to protestantism abroad for the sake of a temporary party advantage at home upon the refusal in november of the lords to concur in the address of the commons requesting the removal of the queen from court he joined in a protest against the refusal and was foremost in all the violent acts of the session he urged on the bill by which catholics were prohibited from sitting in either house of parliament and was bitter in his expressions of disappointment when the commons passed a proviso excepting james against whom the bill was especially aimed from its operation a new parliament met on the sixth of march sixteen seventy nine shaftesbury had meanwhile ineffectually warned the king that unless he followed his advice there would be no peace with the people on the twenty fifth of march he made a striking speech upon the state of the nation especially upon the dangers to protestantism and the misgovernment of scotland and ireland he was suspected too of doing all in his power to bring about a revolt in scotland by the advice of temple charles now tried the experiment of forming a new privy council in which the chief members of the opposition were included and shaftesbury was made president with a salary of four thousand pounds b 
being also a member of the Committee for Foreign Affairs. He did not, however, in any way change either his opinions or his action. He opposed the compelling of Protestant nonconformists to take the oath required of Roman Catholics. That, indeed, as Rank says, which makes him memorable in English history, is that he opposed the establishment of an Anglican and Royalist organization with success. The question of the succession was now again prominent, and Shaftesbury, in opposition to Halifax, committed the error which really brought about his fall, of putting forward Monmouth as his nominee thus alienating a large number of his supporters he encouraged too the belief that this was agreeable to the king he pressed on the exclusion bill with all his power and when that and the inquiry into the payments for secret service and the trial of the five peers for which too he had been eager were brought to an end by a sudden prorogation he is reported to have declared aloud that he would have the heads of those who were the king's advisers to this course before the prorogation however he saw the invaluable act of habeas corpus which he had carried through parliament receive the royal assent in pursuance of his patronage of monmouth Shaftesbury now secured for him the command of the army sent to suppress the insurrection in Scotland, which he is supposed to have fomented. In October 1679, the circumstances which led Charles to desire to conciliate the opposition having ceased, Shaftesbury was dismissed from his presidency and from the Privy Council. When applied to by Sunderland to return to office, he made as conditions the divorce of the Queen and the exclusion of James. With nine other peers he presented a petition to the King in November, praying for the meeting of Parliament, of which Charles took no notice. In April, upon the King's declaration that he was resolved to send for James from Scotland, Shaftesbury advised the popular leaders at once to leave the council, and they followed his advice. In March, we find him unscrupulously eager in the prosecution of the alleged Irish Catholic plot. Upon the King's illness in May, he held frequent meetings of Monmouth's friends at his house, to consider how best to act for the security of the Protestant religion. On the 26th of June, accompanied by fourteen others, he presented to the Grand Jury of Westminster an indictment of the Duke of York as a popish recusant. In the middle of September he was seriously ill. On the 15th of November, the Exclusion Bill, having passed the Commons, was brought up to the Lords, and an historic debate took place, in which Halifax and Shaftesbury were the leaders on opposite sides. 
the bill was thrown out and shaftesbury signed the protest against its rejection the next day he urged upon the house the divorce of the queen on the seventh of december to his lasting dishonour he voted for the condemnation of lord stafford on the twenty-third he again spoke vehemently for exclusion and his speech was immediately printed all opposition was however checked by the dissolution on the eighteenth of january a new parliament was called to meet at oxford to avoid the influences of the city of london where shaftesbury had taken the greatest pains to make himself popular shaftesbury with fifteen other peers petitioned the king that it might as usual be held in the capital he prepared instructions to be handed by constituencies to their members upon election in which exclusion disbanding the limitation of the prerogative in proroguing and dissolving parliament and security against popery and arbitrary power were insisted on at this parliament which lasted but a few days he again made a personal appeal to charles which was curtly rejected to permit the legitimizing of monmouth the king's advisers now urged him to arrest shaftesbury he was seized on the second of july sixteen eighty one and committed to the tower the judges refusing his petition to be tried or admitted to bail this refusal was twice repeated in september and october the court hoping to obtain evidence sufficient to ensure his ruin in october he wrote offering to retire to carolina if he were released on the twenty fourth of november he was indicted for high treason at the old bailey the chief ground being a paper of association for the defence of the protestant religion which though among his papers was not in his handwriting but the grand jury ignored the bill he was released on bail on the first of december in sixteen eighty two however charles secured the appointment of tory sheriffs for london and as the juries were chosen by the sheriffs shaftesbury felt that he was no longer safe from the vengeance of the court failing health and the disappointment of his political plans led him into violent courses he appears to have entered into consultation of a treasonable kind with monmouth and others he himself had he declared ten thousand brisk boys in london ready to rise at his bidding for some weeks he was concealed in the city and in wapping but finding the schemes for a rising hang-fire he went to harwich disguised as a presbyterian minister and after a week's delay during which he was in imminent risk of discovery if indeed as is probable his escape was not winked at by the government he sailed to holland on the twenty eighth of november sixteen eighty two and reached amsterdam in the beginning of december 
here he was welcomed with the jest referring to his famous speech against the dutch nondum delita carthago he was made a citizen of amsterdam but died there of gout in the stomach on the twenty first of january sixteen eighty three his body was sent in february to Poole in dorset and was buried at wimborne st giles few politicians have been the mark of such abuse as shaftesbury dryden while compelled to honour him as an upright judge overwhelmed his memory with scathing if venal satire and dryden's satire has been accepted as truth by later historians macaulay in especial exerted all his art though in contradiction of probability and fact to deepen still further the shade which rests upon his reputation christie on the other hand in possession of later sources of information and with more honest purpose did much to rehabilitate him occasionally however he appears to hold a brief for the defence and though the picture is comparatively true this life eighteen seventy one should be read with caution finally in his monograph eighteen eighty six in the series of english worthies h d trail professes to hold the scales equally he makes an interesting addition to our conception of shaftesbury's place in english politics by insisting on his position as the first great party leader in the modern sense and as the founder of modern parliamentary oratory in other respects his book is derived almost entirely from christie see also the present writer's article in the dictionary national biography much of shaftesbury's career increasingly so as it came near its close is incapable of defence but it has escaped most of his critics that his life up to the restoration apparently full of inconsistencies was evidently guided by one leading principle the determination to uphold the supremacy of parliament a principle which however obscured by self-interest appears also to have underlain his whole political career he was too ever the friend of religious freedom and of an enlightened policy in all trade questions and above all it should not be forgotten in justice to shaftesbury's memory that during his long political career in an age of general corruption he was ever incorrupt and never grasped either money or land osmond airy end of the first earl of shaftesbury from the encyclopedia britannica eleventh edition Shearing in the Riverina, New South Wales. This is a LibriVox recording. 
All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Shearing in the Riverina, New South Wales by Ralph Baldrowood. Shearing commences tomorrow. These apparently simple words were spoken by Hugh Gordon, the manager of Anabanco Station, in the district of Riverina, in the colony of New South Wales, one Monday morning in the month of August. The utterance had its importance to every member of a rather extensive corps dramatique awaiting the industrial drama about to be performed. A low sand hill a few years since had looked out over a sea of grey plains, covered partly with grass, partly with salsiferous bushes and herbs. Two or three huts, built of the trunks of the pine and roofed with the bark of the box-tree, and a skeleton-looking cattle-yard with its high gallows, a rude timber stage whereon to hang slaughtered cattle, alone broke the monotony of the plain ocean. A comparatively small herd of cattle, two thousand or three thousand, found more than sufficient pasturage during the short winter and spring, but were always compelled to migrate to mountain pastures when the swamps, which alone in those days formed the water-stores of the run, were dried up but two or three or at most half a dozen stockmen were ever needed for the purpose of managing the herd so inadequate in number and profitable occupation to this vast tract of grazing country but a little later one of the great chiefs of the wool-producing interest a shepherd king so to speak of shrewdness energy and capital had seen approved and purchased the lease of this waste kingdom almost at once as if by magic the scene changed great gangs of navvies appeared winding their way across the silent plain dams were made wells were dug tons of fencing wire were dropped on the sand by the long line of teams which seemed never tired of arriving sheep by thousands and tens of thousands began to come grazing and cropping up the lonely sand hill now swarming with blacksmiths carpenters engineers fencers shepherds bullock drivers to the place looked like a fair on the borders of tartary meanwhile everything was moving with calculated force and costs under the reign of law the seeming expense was merely the economic truth of doing all the necessary work at once rather than by installments one hundred men for one day rather than one man for one hundred days results soon began to demonstrate themselves in twelve months the dams were full the wells sending up their far-fetched priceless water the wire fences erected the shepherds gone and seventeen thousand sheep cropping the herbage of Anabanco. Tuesday was the day fixed for the actual commencement of the momentous, almost solemn transaction, the pastoral hegira, so to speak, as the time of most station events is calculated with reference to it as happening before or after shearing. But before the first shot is fired, which tells of the battle begun, what raids and skirmishes, what reconnoitring and vedette duty must take place. First arrives the cook-in-chief to the shearers, with two assistants to lay in a few provisions for the week's consumption of seventy able-bodied men. I must here explain that the cook of a large shearing shed is a highly paid and tolerably irresponsible official. He is paid and provided by the shearers. Payment is generally arranged on the scale of half a crown a head weekly from each shearer. For this sum he must provide punctual and effective cooking, paying out of his own pocket as many marmotons as may be needful for that end and to satisfy his tolerably exacting and fastidious employers in the present case 
he confers with the storekeeper mr de vere a young gentleman of aristocratic connections who is thus gaining an excellent practical knowledge of the working of a large station and to this end has the storekeeping department entrusted to him during shearing he does not perhaps look quite fit for a croquet party as he stands now with a flour scoop in one hand and a pound of tobacco in the other but he looks like a man at work and also like a gentleman as he is jack the cook thus addresses him now mr de vere i hope there's not going to be any humbugging about my rations and things the men are all up in their quarters and as hungry as free selectors they've been a-paying for their rations for ever so long and of course now shearing's on they're good for a little extra all right jack returns de vere good-temperedly all your lot was weighed out and sent away before breakfast you must have missed the cart here's the list i'll read it out to you three bags flour half a bullock two bags sugar a chest of tea four dozen of pickles four dozen of jam two gallons of vinegar five pounds pepper a bag of salt plates knives forks ovens frying pans saucepans iron pots and about a hundred other things now mind you return all the cooking things safe or pay for them that's the order you don't want anything more do you you've got enough for a regiment of cavalry i should think well i don't know there won't be much left in a week if the weather holds good makes answer the chef as one who thought nothing too stupendous to be accomplished by shearers but i knew i'd forget something as i'm here i'll take a few dozen boxes of sardines and a case of pickled salmon the boys like em and murder alive haven't we forgot the plums and currants a hundred weight of each mr de vere they'll be crying out for plum duff and currant buns for the afternoon and bullying the life out of me if i haven't a few trifles like it's a hard life surely a shearer's cook well good-bye sir you have em all down in the book lest the reader should imagine that the role of mr gordon at anabanco was a reign of luxury and that waste which tendeth to penury let him be aware that all shearers in riverina are paid at a certain rate usually that of one pound per hundred sheep shorn they agree on the other hand to pay for all supplies consumed by them at certain prices fixed before the shearing agreement is signed hence it is entirely their own affair whether their mess bills are extravagant or economical they can have anything within the rather wide range of the station store pates de foie gras or tolans roast ostrich novels top boots double-barrelled guns if they like to pay for them with one exception no wine no spirits neither are they permitted to bring these stimulants on to the grounds for their private use grog at shearing matches in a powder mill it's very sad and bad but our anglo-saxon industrial or defensive champion cannot be trusted with the fire water navvies men of wars men soldiers and shearers fine fellows all but though the younger men might only drink in moderation the majority and the older men are utterly without self-control once in the front of temptation and wars wounds without cause hot heads shaking hands delay and bad shearing would be the inevitable results of spirits a la discretion so much is this a matter of certainty from experience that a clause is inserted and cheerfully signed in most shearing agreements 
that any man getting drunk or bringing spirits on to the station during shearing loses the whole of the money earned by him the men know that the striction is for their benefit as well as for the interest of the master and join in the prohibition heartily let us give a glance at the small army of working men assembled at Anabanco, one out of hundreds of stations in the colony of new south wales ranging from one hundred thousand sheep downwards there are seventy shearers about fifty washers including the men connected with the steam engine boilers bricklayers and the like ten or twelve boundary riders whose duty it is to ride round the large paddocks seeing that the fences are all intact and keeping a general lookout over the condition of the sheep three or four overseers half a dozen young gentlemen acquiring a practical knowledge of sheep farming or as it is generally phrased colonial experience a comprehensive expression enough a score or two of teamsters with a couple of hundred horses or bullocks waiting for the high-piled wool piles which are loaded up and sent away almost as soon as shorn wool sorters pickers up pressers yardsmen extra shepherds it may easily be gathered from this outline what an army with banners is arrayed at anabanco while statistically inclined it may be added that the cash due for the shearing alone less the mess bill amounts to seventeen hundred pounds for the washing roughly four hundred pounds exclusive of provisions consumed hutting wood water cooking carriage of wool fifteen hundred pounds other hands from thirty pounds to forty pounds per week all of which disbursements take place within from eight to twelve weeks after the shears are in the first sheep tuesday comes big with fate as the sun tinges the far skyline the shearers are taking a slight refection of coffee and currant buns to enable them to withstand the exhausting interval between six and eight o'clock when the serious breakfast occurs shearers always diet themselves on the principle that the more they eat the stronger they must be digestion as preliminary to muscular development is left to take its chance they certainly do get through a tremendous amount of work the whole frame is at its utmost tension early and late but the preservation of health is due to their natural strength of constitution rather than to their profuse and unscientific diet half an hour after sunrise mr gordon walks quietly into the vast building which contains the sheep and their shearers called the shed par excellence everything is in perfect cleanliness and order the floor swept and smooth with its carefully planed boards of pale yellow aromatic pine small tramways with baskets for the fleeces run the wool up to the wool tables superseding the more general plan of hand-picking at each side of the shed floor are certain small areas four or five feet square such space being found by experience to be sufficient for the postures and gymnastics practised during the shearing of a sheep opposite to each square is an aperture communicating with a long narrow paled yard outside of the shed through this each man pops his sheep when shorn where he remains in company with the others shorn by the same hand until counted out this being done by the overseer or manager supplies a check upon hasty or unskilful work the body of the wool shed floored with battens placed half an inch apart is filled with the woolly victims this enclosure is subdivided into minor pens of which each fronts the place of two shearers who catch from it until the pen is empty when this takes place a man for the purpose refills it as there are local advantages 
an equitable distribution of places for shearing has to be made by lot on every subdivision stands a shearer as mr gordon walks with an air of calm authority down the long aisle seventy men chiefly in their prime the flower of the workingmen of the colony they are variously gathered england ireland and scotland are represented in the proportion of one half of the number the other half is composed of native-born australians among these last of pure anglo-saxon or anglo-celtic descent are to be seen some of the finest men physically considered the race is capable of producing taller than their british-born brethren with softer voices and more regular features they inherit the powerful frames and unequalled muscular development of the breed leading lives chiefly devoted to agricultural labour they enjoy larger intervals of leisure than is permissible to the labouring classes of europe the climate is mild and favourable to health they have been accustomed from childhood to abundance of the best food opportunities of intercolonial travel are frequent and common hence the anglo-australian labourer without on the one hand the sharpened eagerness which marks his transatlantic cousin has yet an air of independence and intelligence combined with a natural grace of movement unknown to the peasantry of britain an idea is prevalent that the australians are as a race physically inferior to the british it is asserted that they grow too fast tend to height and slenderness and do not possess adequate stamina and muscle the idea is erroneous the men reared in the cities on the seaboard living sedentary lives in shops banks or counting-houses are doubtless more or less pale and slight of form so are they who live under such conditions all over the world but those youngsters who have followed the plough on the upland farms or lived a wilder life on the stations of the far interior who have had their fill of wheaten bread and beefsteaks since they could walk and snuffed up the free bush breezes from infancy they are men stout of heart and ready of hand as air drove prey from cumberland a business i may remark at which many of them would have distinguished themselves take abraham lawson as he stands there in a natural and unstudied attitude six feet four inches in his stockings wide-chested stalwart with a face like that of a greek statue take billy may fair-headed mild insouciant almost languid till you see him at work then again jack windsor handsome saucy and wiry as a bull terrier and like him with strong natural inclination for the combat good for any man of his weight or a trifle over with the gloves or without it is curious to note how the old english practice of settling disputes with nature's weapons has taken root in australia it would gladden the sullen souls of the defunct gladiators to watch two lads whose fathers had never trodden england's soil pull off their jackets and go to work hammer and tongs with all the savage silence of the true island type it is now about seven o'clock mr gordon moves forward as he does so every man leans towards the open door of the pen in front of which he stands the bell sounds with the first stroke each one of the seventy men has sprung upon a sheep has drawn it out placed its head across his knee and is working his shears as if the last man out was to be flogged or tarred and feathered at the least four minutes james steadman who learned last year has shorn down one side of his sheep jack holmes and gundagai bill are well down the other side of theirs 
when Billy May raises himself with a jerking sigh and releases his sheep, perfectly clean-shorn from the nose to the heels, through the aperture of his separate enclosure. With the same effort, apparently, he calls out, Wool, and darts upon another sheep, drawing this second victim across his knee. He buries his shear points in the long wool of its neck. A moment after, a lithe and eager boy has gathered up fleece number one and tossed it into the train basket, the shearers halfway down the sheep's side, the wool hanging in one fleece like a great glossy mat, before you have done wondering whether he did really shear the first sheep, or whether he had not a ready shorn one in his coat sleeve, like a conjurer. By this time Jack Holmes and Gundagai Bill are out or finished, and the cry of wool, wool, seems to run continuously up and down the long aisles of the shed like a single note upon some rude instrument. Now and then the refrain is varied by tar being shouted instead when a piece of skin is snipped off as well as the wool. Great healing properties are attributed to this extract in the shed, and if a shearer slice off a piece of flesh from his own person, as occasionally happens, he gravely anoints it with the universal remedy, and considers that the honest then lies with providence, there being no more that man can do. Though little time is lost, the men are by no means up to the speed which they will attain in a few days when in full practice and training. Their nerve, muscle, eye, endurance will be all at, so to speak, concert pitch, and sheep after sheep will be shorn with precision and clarity even awful to the unprofessional observer. The unpastoral reader may be informed that speed and completeness of denudation are the grand desiderata in shearing. The employer thinks principally of the latter, the shearer principally of the former. To adjust equitably, the proportion is one of those incomplete aspirations which torment humanity. Hence the contest, old as human society, between labor and capital. This is the first day. According to old established custom, a kind of truce obtains. It is before the battle, the salute, when no hasty word or too demonstrative action can be suffered by the cannons of good taste. Red Bill, Flash Jack, Jim the Scooper, and other roaring blades, more famous for expedition than faithful manipulation, are shearing today with a painstaking precision, as of men to whom character is everything. Mr. Gordon marches softly up and down, regarding the shearers with a paternal and gratified expression occasionally hinting at slight improvements of style or expressing unqualified approval as a sheep is turned out shaven rather than shorn all goes on well nothing is heard but expressions of good will and enthusiasm for the general welfare it is a triumph of the dignity of labor one o'clock mr gordon moved on to the bell and sounded it at the first stroke several men on their way to the pens stopped abruptly and began to put on their coats one fellow of an alert nature, Master Jack Windsor, had just finished his sheep and was sharpening his shears when his eye caught Mr. Gordon's form in proximity to the final bell. With a bound like a wildcat, he reached the pen and drew out his sheep a fair second before the first stroke amidst the laughter and congratulations of his comrades. Another man had his hand on the pen gate at the same instant, but by the Midian law was compelled to return, sheepless. He was cheered, but ironically. Those whose sheeps were in an unfinished stage quietly completed them, the others moving off to their huts, where their board literally smoked with abundance. An hour passed, the meal was concluded, the smoke was over, and the more careful men were back in the shed sharpening their shears by two o'clock. Punctually at that hour the bell repeated its summons to Capo. 
the warm afternoon gradually lengthened its shadows the shears clicked in tireless monotone the pens filled and became empty the wool presses yawned for the mountain of fleeces which filled the bins in front of them divided into various grades of excellence and continuously disgorged them neatly and cubically packed and branded at six o'clock the bell brought the day's work to a close the sheep of each man were counted in his presence and noted down with scrupulous care the record being written out in full and hung up for public inspection in the shed next day this important ceremony over master and men manager laborers and supernumeraries betook themselves to their separate abodes with such keen avoidance of delay that in five minutes not a soul was left in or near the great building lately so busy and populous except the boys who were sweeping up the floor the silence of ages seems to fall and settle upon it next morning at a rather earlier hour every man is at his post business is meant decidedly now commences the delicate and difficult part of the superintendence which keeps mr gordon at his post in the shed nearly from daylight till dark for from eight to ten weeks during the first day he has formed a sort of gauge of each man's temper and workmanship for now and henceforth the natural bias of each shearer will appear some try to shear too fast and in their haste shear badly some are rough and savage with the sheep which do occasionally kick and become unquiet at critical times and it must be confessed are provoking enough some shear very fairly and handsomely to a superficial eye but commit the unpardonable offence of leaving wool on some are deceitful shearing carefully when overlooked but racing and otherwise misbehaving directly the eye of authority is diverted these and many other tricks and defects require to be noted and abated quietly but firmly by the manager of the shed firmly because evil would develop and spread ruminously if not checked quietly because immense loss might be incurred by a strike shearing differs from other work in this wise it is work against time more especially in riverina if the wool be not off the backs of the sheep for november all sorts of drawbacks and destructions supervene the spear-shaped grass seeds specially formed as if in special collusion with the evil one hasten to bury themselves in the wool and even in the flesh of the tender victims dust rises in red clouds from the unmoistened betrampled meadows so lately verdurous and flower-spangled from snowy white to an unlovely dark brown turn the carefully washed fleeces causing anathema from overseers and depreciation from brokers all these losses of temper trouble and money become inevitable if shearing be protracted it may be beyond a given week hence as in harvest with a short allowance of fair weather discipline must be tempered with the diplomacy lose your temper and be over particular off go billy may abraham lawson and half a dozen of your best men making a weekly difference of perhaps two or three thousand sheep for the remainder of the shearing can you not replace them not so every shed in riverina will be hard at work during this present month of september and for every hour of october till that time not a shearer will come to your gate except perhaps one or two useless characterless men are you to tolerate bad workmanship not that either but try all other means with your men before you resort to harshness and be quite certain that your sentence is just and that you can afford the defection so our friend mr gordon wise from many tens of thousands of shorn sheep that have been counted out past his steady eye criticizes temperately but watchfully he reproves sufficiently and no more any glaring fault 
makes his calculation as to who are really bad shearers and can be discharged without loss to the commonwealth or who can shear fairly and can be coached up to a decent average one division slow and good only when slow have to be watched lest they emulate the talent and so come to grief then the talent has to be mildly admonished from time to time lest they force the pace set a bad example and lure the other men on to racing this last leads to slovenly shearing ill usage of the sheep and general dissatisfaction tact temper patience and firmness are each and all necessary in that captain of industry who has the very delicate and important task of superintending a large wool shed hugh gordon had shown all in such proportion as would have made a distinguished man anywhere had fortune not adjusted for him this particular profession calm with the consciousness of strength he was kind and considerate in manner as in nature until provoked by glaring dishonesty or incivility then the lion part of his nature woke up so that it commonly went ill with the aggressor as this was matter of public report he had little occasion to spoil the repose of his bearing day succeeds day and for a fortnight the machinery goes on smoothly and successfully the sheep arrive at an appointed day and hour by detachments and regiments at the wash-pin they depart thence like good boys on saturday night redolent of soap and water and clean to a fault they enter the shed white and flossy as newly combed poodles to emerge on the way back to their pasturage slim delicate agile and with a bright black a legibly branded with tar on their paper-white skins the anabanco world stiffish but undaunted is turning out of bed one morning ha what sounds are these and why does the room look so dark rain as i'm alive hurrah says master jack bowles one of the young gentlemen he is learning more or less practical sheep farming preparatory to having one of these days an anabanco of his own well this is a change and i'm not sorry for one quoth mr jack i'm stiff all over no one can stand such work long won't the shearers growl no shearing to-day and perhaps none to-morrow either truth to tell mr bowles sentiments are not confined to his ingenuous bosom some of the shearers grumble at being stopped just as a man was earning a few shillings those who are in top pace and condition don't like it but to many of the rank and file working up to and a little beyond their strength with whom swelled wrists and other protests of nature are becoming apparent it is a relief and they are glad of the respite so at dinner-time all the sheep in the sheds put in overnight in anticipation of such a contingency a reported shorn all hands are then idle for the rest of the day the shearers dress and avail themselves of various resources some go to look at their horses now in clover or its equivalent in the riverina graminetum some play cards others wash or mend their clothes a large proportion of the australians having armed themselves with paper envelopes and a shilling's worth of stamps from the store bethink themselves of neglected or desirable correspondence many a letter for miss left alone wallaroo creek or miss jane sweetapple honeysuckle flat as the case may be will find its way into the post-bag to-morrow a pair of youngsters are having a round or two with the gloves while to complete the variety of recreations compatible with life a wool-shed a selected troop are busy in the comparative solitude of that building at a rehearsal of a tragedy and a farce with which they intend the very next rainy day to astonish the population of Anabanco. At the home station, a truce to laborers' alarms is proclaimed except in the case 
and person of mr de vere so far is he from participation in the general holiday that he finds the store thronged with shearers washers and knockabout men who being let loose think it would be nice to go and buy something he therefore grumbles slightly at having no rest like other people that's all very fine says mr jack bowles who seated on a case is smoking a large meerschaum and mildly regarding all things but what have you got to do when we're all hard at work at the shed he speaks with an air of great importance and responsibility that's right mr bowles chimes in one of the shears stand up for the shed i never see a young gentleman work as hard as you do bosh growls de vere as if anybody couldn't gallop about from the shed to the wash-pen and carry messages and give half of them wrong why mr gordon said the other day he should have to take you off and put on a chinaman that he couldn't make more mistakes all envy and malice and the other thing de vere because you think i am rising in the profession returns the good-natured bowles mr gordon's going to send twenty thousand sheep after shearing to the licklack paddock and he said i should go and charge charge be hanged laughs de vere with two very bright patterned crimean shirts one in each hand which he offers to a tall young shearer for inspection there's a will there and whenever either of the two men of whom you'll have charge gets sick or runs away you'll have to work the whim in his place till another man's sent out if it's a month this appalling view of station promotion rather startles mr jack who applies himself to his meerschaum amid the ironical comments of the shearers however not easily daunted or shut up according to the more familiar station phrase he rejoins after a brief interval of contemplation that accidents will happen you know de vere my boy apropos of which moral sentiment i'll come and help you in your dry goods business and then look here if you get ill or run away i'll have a profession to fall back upon this is held to be a roland of sufficient pungency for de vere's oliver every one laughed and then the two youngsters betook themselves to a humorous puffing of the miscellaneous contents of the store tulip beds of gorgeous crimean shirts boots books tobacco canvas slippers pocket knives epsom salts pipes pickles painkillers pocket handkerchiefs pills sardines saddles shears and sauces in fact everything which every kind of man might want which apparently every man did want for large and various were the purchases and great the flow of conversation finally everything was severely and accurately debited to the purchasers and the store was cleared and locked up a large store is a necessity of a large station not by any means because of the profit upon goods sold but it obviously would be bad economy for old bill the shepherd or barney the bullock driver to visit the next township from ten to thirty miles distant as the case may be every time the former wanted a pound of tobacco or the latter a pair of boots they might possibly obtain these necessary articles as good in quality as cheap in price but there are wolves in that wood o oh, my weak brothers in all towns dwells one of the sons of the giant the giant grog red-eyed with steel muscles and iron claws once in these which have held many and better men to the death neither barney nor bill emerges save pale fevered nerveless and impecunious so arose the station store barney befits himself with boots without losing his feet bill fills his pocket with matchbooks and smokes the pipe of sobriety virtuous perforce till his carnival after shearing the next day was wet and threatened further broken weather matters were not too placid with the shearers 
a day or two for rest is very well but continuous wet weather means compulsory idleness and gloom secedes repose for not only are all hands losing time and earning no money but they are to use the language of the stable eating their heads off the while the rather profuse mess and general expenditure which caused little reflection when they were earning at the rate of two or three hundred pounds a year become unpleasantly suggestive now that all is going out and nothing coming in hence loud and deep were the anathemas as the discontented men gazed sadly or wrathfully at the misty sky a few days showery weather having therefore well-nigh driven our shearers to desperation out comes the sun in all his glory he is never far away or very faint in riverina all the pens are filled for the morrow very soon after the earliest sunbeams the bell sounds its welcome summons and the whole force tackles to the work with an ardour proportioned to the delay every man working as if for the ransom of his whole family from slavery how men work spurred on by the double excitement of acquiring social reputation and making money rapidly not an instant is lost not a nerve limb or muscle doing less than the hardest taskmaster could flog out of a slave occasionally you see a shearer after finishing his sheep walk quickly out and not appear for a couple of hours or perhaps not again during the day do not put him down as a sluggard be assured that he has taken nature dangerously hard and has only given in just before she does look at that silent slight youngster with a bandage round his swollen wrist every blow of the shears is agony to him yet he disdains to give in and has been working in distress for hours the pain is great as you can see by the flush which occasionally surges across his brown face yet he goes on manfully to the last sheep and endures to the very verge of fainting there was now a change in the manner and tone of the shed especially towards the end of the day it was now the ding of the desperate fray when the blood of the fierce animal man is up when mortal blows are exchanged and curses float upward with the smoke and dust the ceaseless clicking of the shears the stern earnestness of the men toiling with a feverish and tireless energy the constant succession of sheep shorn and let go caught and commenced the occasional savage oath a passionate gesture as a sheep kicked and struggled with perverse delaying obstinacy the cuts and stabs with brief decided tones of mr gordon in repression or command all told the spectator that tragic action was introduced into the performance indeed one of the minor excitements of shearing was then and there transacted mr gordon had more than once warned a dark sullen-looking man that he did not approve of his style of shearing he was temporarily absent and on his return found the same man about to let go a sheep whose appearance as a shorn wool-bearing quadruped was painful and discreditable in the extreme let your sheep go my man said gordon in a tone which somehow attested the attention of nearly all the shearers but don't trouble yourself to catch another one why not said the delinquent sulkily you know very well why not replied gordon walking closely up to him and looking straight at him with eyes that began to glitter you've had fair warning you've not chosen to take it now you can go i suppose you'll pay a man for the sheep he's shorn growled out the ruffian not one shilling until after shearing you can come then if you like answered gordon with perfect distinctness the cowed bully looked savagely at him but the tall powerful frame and steady eye were not inviting for personal arbitration of the matter in hand he put up his two pairs of shears put on his coat and walked out of the shed the time was past when red bill or terrible dick ruffians whom a sparse labour market rendered necessary evils 
would have flung down his shears upon the floor and told the manager that if he didn't like that shearing he could shear his sheep himself and be hanged to him or on refusal of instant payment would have proposed to bury his shears in the intestines of his employer by way of adjusting the balance between capital and labor many wild tales are told of woolshed rows i knew of one squatter stabbed mortally with that fatal and convenient weapon a shear blade the man thus summarily dealt with could like most of his companions shear very well if he took pains keeping to a moderate number of sheep his workmanship could be good but he must needs try and keep up with billy may or abraham lawson who can shear from one hundred to one thirty sheep per day and do them beautifully so in racing he works hastily and badly cuts the skin of his luckless sheep nearly as often as the wool and leaves wool here and there on them grievous and exasperating to behold so sentence of expulsion goes forth fully against him having arrayed himself for the road he makes one more effort for a settlement and some money wherewith to pay for board and lodging on the road only to have a mad carouse at the nearest township however after which he will tell a plausible story of his leaving the shed on account of mr gordon's temper and avail himself of the usual free hospitality of the bush to reach another shed he addresses mr gordon with an attempt at consolation and deference it seems very odd sir as a man can't get the trifle of money coming to him which i've worked hard for it's very hard you won't try and shear decently retorts mr gordon by no means conciliated leave the shed ill-conditioned rascal as the shearer is he has a mate or travelling companion in whose breast exists some rough idea of fidelity he now takes up the dialogue i suppose if jim's shearing don't suit mine won't either i did not speak to you answered mr gordon as calmly as if he had expected the speech but of course you can go he said this with an air of studied unconcern as if he would rather like a dozen more men to knock off work the two men walk out but the epidemic does not spread and several take the lesson home and mend their ways accordingly the weather now was splendid not a cloud specked the bright blue sky the shearers continue to work at the same express train pace fifty bales of wool roll every day from the wool presses as fast as they reach that number they are loaded upon the numerous drays and wagons which have been waiting for weeks tall brown men have been recklessly cutting up hides for the last fortnight wherewith to lash the bales securely it is considered safer practice to load wool as soon as may be fifty bales represent about a thousand pounds sterling in a building however secure should a fire break out a few hundred bales are easily burned but once on the dray this much dreaded edaxrerum in a dry country has little chance the driver responsible to the extent of his freight generally sleeps under his dray hence both watchmen and insulation are provided the unrelaxing energy with which the work was pushed at this stage was exciting and contagious at or before daylight every soul in the great establishment was up the boundary riders were always starting off for a twenty or thirty mile ride and bringing tens of thousands of sheep to the wash-pen at that huge lavatory there was splashing and soaking all day with an army of washers not a moment is lost from sunlight till dark or used for any purpose save the all-engrossing work and need for food at nine o'clock p m luxurious dreamless sleep given only to those whose physical powers have been taxed to the utmost and who can bear without injury the daily tension everything and everybody were in splendid working order nothing out of gear 
rapid and regular as a steam engine the great host of toilers moved onward daily with a march which promised an unusually early completion mr gordon was not in high spirits for so cautious and far-seeing a captain rarely felt himself so independent of circumstances as to indulge in that reckless mood but much satisfied with the prospect woo the afternoon darkens and the night is delivered over the water-spouts and hurricanes as it appears next day was raw gusty with chill heavy showers drains had to be cut roofs to be seen to shorn sheep were shivering washers all playing pitch and toss shearers sulky everybody but the young gentleman wearing a most injurious expression of countenance looks as if it would rain for a month says long jack if we hadn't been delayed might have had the shearing over by this reminded that there are fifty thousand sheep yet remaining to be shorn and that by no possibility could they have been finished he answers suppose so always the same everything sure to go again the poor man the weather did not clear up winter seemed to have taken thought and determined to show even this land of eternal summer that he had his rights the shed would be filled and before the sheep so kept dry were shorn down would come the rain again not a full day shearing for ten days then the clouds disappeared as if the curtain of the stage had been rolled up and lo the golden sun fervid and impatient to obliterate the track of winter the first day after the recommencement matters went much as usual steady work and little talk as if every one was anxious to make up for the lost time but on the second morning after breakfast when the bell sounded instead of the usual cheerful dash at the sheep every man stood silent and motionless in his place some one uttered the words roll up then the seventy men converged and slowly but with one impulse walked up to the end of the shed where stood mr gordon the concerted action of any body of men bears with it an element of power which commands respect the weapon of force is theirs it is at their option to wield it with or without mercy at one period of australian colonization a superintendent in mr gordon's position might have had good ground for uneasiness mr jack bowles saw in it an immute of a democratic and sanguinary nature regretted deeply his absent revolver but drew up to his leader prepared to die by his side that calm centurion felt no such serious misgivings he knew that there had been dire grumbling among the shearers in consequence of the weather he knew that there were malcontents among them he was prepared for some sort of demand on their part and had concluded to make certain concessions of a moderate degree so looking cheerfully at the men he quietly awaited the deputation as they neared him there was a little hesitation and then three delegates came to the front these were old ben abraham lawson and billy may ben thornton had been selected for his age and long experience of the rights and laws of the craft he was a weather-beaten wiry old englishman whose face and accent darkened as the former was by the australian summers of half a century still retained the trace of his native devonshire it was his boast that he had shorn for forty years and as regularly knocked down or spent in a single debauch his shearing money lawson represented the small freeholders being a steady shrewd fellow and one of the fastest shearers billy may stood for the fashion and talent being the ringer or fastest shearer of the whole assembly and as such admirable and distinguished well now men quoth mr gordon cheerily meeting matters half way what's it all about the younger delegate looked at old ben who now that it was demanded of him to speak the truth or such delusion thereof as might seem most favourable to the interests of the shed found a difficulty like many wiser men about his exordium well muster gordon at length he broke forth look ye here sir 
the weather's been awful bad and clean again cheering we're not been earning our grub and so it has answered the manager so it has but can i help the weather i'm as anxious as you are to have the shearing over quickly we're both of one mind about that eh that's all right enough sir struck in abraham lawson who felt that ben was getting the worst of the argument and was moreover far less fluent than usual probably from being deprived of the aid of the customary expletives but we're come to say this sir that the season's turned out very wet indeed we've had a deal of broken time and the men feel it very hard to be paying for a lot of rations and hardly earning anything we're shearing the sheep very close and clean you won't have em done no other way not like some sheds where a man can run a bit and make up for a lost time now we've all come to think this sir that if we're to go on shearing the sheep well and to stick to them and get them done before the dust and grass seed come in that you ought to make us some allowance we know we've agreed for such a hundred and all that still as the seasons turn so out and out bad we hope you'll consider it and make it up to us somehow never knew a worse year corroborated billy may who thought it indispensable to say something haven't made enough myself to pay the cook this was not strictly true at any rate as to master billy's own earnings he being such a remarkably fast shearer and good withal that he had always a respectable sum credited to him for his day's work even when many of the slower men came off short enough however enough had been said to make mr gordon fully comprehend the case the men were dissatisfied they had come in a roundabout way to the conclusion that some pecuniary concession not mentioned in their bond should come from the side of capital to that of labor whether wages interest of capital share of profits reserve fund they knew not nor cared this was their stand and being englishmen they intended to abide by it the manager had considered the situation before it actually arose he now rapidly took in the remaining points of debate the shearers had signed a specific agreement for a stipulated rate of payment irrespective of the weather by the letter of the law they had no case whether they made little or much profit was not his affair but he was a just and kind man as well as reasonably politic they had shorn well and the weather had been discouraging he knew too that an abrupt denial might cause a passive mutiny if not a strike if they set themselves to thwart him it was in their power to shear badly to shear slowly and to force him to discharge many of them he might have them fined perhaps imprisoned by the police court meanwhile how could shearing go on dust and grass seeds would soon be upon them he resolved on a compromise and spoke out at once in a firm and decided tone as the men gathered up yet more closely around him look here all of you you know very well that i am not bound to find you in fine weather still i am aware that the season has been against you you have shorn pretty well so far though i have had to make examples and am quite ready to make more what i am willing to do is this to every man who works on to the finish and shears to my satisfaction i will make a fair allowance in the ration account that is i will make no charge for the beef does that suit you there was a chorus of all right sir we're satisfied mr gordon always does the right thing etc and work was immediately resumed with alacrity the clerk of the weather too gracious even in these regions as far as the absence of rain is concerned was steadily propitious cloudless skies and a gradually ascending thermometer alone were the signs that spring was changing into summer the splendid herbage ripened and dried patches of bare earth began to be discernible amid the late thick-swarded pastures dust to rise and cloud pillars of sand to float and eddy 
the desert genie of the arab but the work went on at a high rate of speed outpacing the fast-coming summer and before any serious disasters arose the last flock was on the battens and amid ironical congratulations the cobbler or last sheep was seized and stripped of his rather dense and difficult fleece in ten minutes the vast woolshed lately echoing with the ceaseless click of the shears the jests the songs the oaths of the rude congregation was silent and deserted the floors were swept the pens closed the sheep on their way to a distant paddock not a soul remains about the building but the pressers who stay to work at the rapidly lessening piles of fleeces in the bins or a meditative teamster who sits musing on a wool bale absorbed in a calculation as to when his load will be made up it is sundown a rather later time of closing than usual but rendered necessary by the possibility of the grand finale the younger men troop over to the hut larking like schoolboys abraham lawson throws a poncho over his broad shoulders lights his pipe and strides along towering above the rest erect and stately as a guardsman considerably more so than you or i reader would have been had we shorn one hundred thirty sheep as he has done to-day billy may has shorn one hundred forty-two and he puts his hand on the five-foot piling fence of the yard and vaults over it like a deer preparatory to a swim in the creek at dinner you will see them all with fresh crimeans and jerseys clean comfortable and in grand spirits next morning is settling day the bookkeeping departments at anabanco being severely correct all is in readiness each man's tally or number of sheep shorn has been entered daily to his credit his private and personal investments at the store have been as duly debited the shearers as a corporation have been charged with the rather multifarious items of the rather copious mess bill this sum total is divided by the number of the shearers the extract being the amount for which each man is liable this sum varies in its weekly proportion at different sheds with an extravagant cook or cooks the weekly bill is often alarming when the men and their functionaries study economy it may be kept very reasonably low the men have been sitting or standing about the office for half an hour when mr jack bowles rushes out and shouts william may that young person excessively clean attired in a quiet tweed suit with his hair cut very correctly short advances with an air of calm intrepidity and faces mr gordon gordon now seated at a long table wearing a judicial expression of countenance well may here's your account so many sheep at one pound per one hundred x x x x pounds cook so many weeks x x x x pounds shearing store account x x x x pounds private store account x x x x pounds total x x x x pounds is the tally of your sheep right oh i dare say it's all right mr gordon i made it so and so about ten less well well ours is correct no doubt now i want to make up a good subscription for the hospital this year how much will you give you've done pretty well i think put me down a pound sir very well that's fair enough if everyone gives what they can afford you men will always have a place to go to when you're hurt or laid up so i put your name down and you'll see it in the published list now about the shearing may i consider that you've done your work very well and behaved very well all through you're a fast shearer but you shear closely and don't knock your sheep about i therefore do not charge you for any part of your meat bill and i pay you at the rate of half a crown a hundred for all your sheep over and above your agreement will that do very well indeed 
and I'm much obliged to you, Mr. Gordon. Well, good-bye, May. Always call when you're passing, and if any work is going on, you'll get your share. Here's your check. Send in Lawson. Exit May in high spirits, having cleared about three pounds per week during the whole term of shearing, and having lived a far from unpleasant life, indeed akin to that of a fighting cock, from the commencement to the end of that period. Lawson's interview may be described as having very similar results. He also was a first-class shearer, though not so artistic as the gifted Billy. Jack Windsor's saucy blue eyes twinkled merrily as he returned to his companions, and incontinently leaped on the back of his well-eyed colt. After these three worthies came a shearer named Jackson. He belonged to quite a different class. He could shear very well if he pleased, but he had a rooted disbelief that honesty was the best policy, and a fixed determination to shear as many sheep as he could get the manager to pass. By dint of close watching, constant reprimand, and occasional rattling, marking badly shorn sheep, and refusing to count them, Mr. Gordon had managed to tone him down to average respectability of execution. Still, he was always uneasily aware that whenever his eye was not upon him, Jackson was doing what he ought not to do, with might and main. Gordon had, indeed, kept him on from sheer necessity, but he intended none the less to mark his opinion of him. Come in, Jackson. Your tally is so-and-so. Is that right? Jackson. I suppose so. Cook and store account so much. Shearing account so much. Jackson. And a good deal, too. That is your affair, said Mr. Gordon, sternly enough. Now, look here. You are, in my opinion, a bad shearer and a bad man. You have given me a great deal of trouble, and I should have kicked you out of the shed weeks ago if I had not been short of men. I shall make a difference between you and men who have tried to do their best. I make no allowance of any sort. I pay you by the strict agreement. There's your check. Go. Jackson goes out with a very black countenance. He mutters with a surly oath that if he had known how he was going to be served, he'd have blocked him a little more. He is pretty well believed to have been served right, and he secures no sympathy whatever. Working men of all classes are shrewd and fair judges generally. If an employer does his best to mete out justice, he is always appreciated and supported by the majority. These few instances will serve as a description of the whole process of settling with the shearers. The horses have all been got in. Great catching and saddling up has taken place all the morning. By the afternoon, the whole party are dispersed to the four winds, some, like Abraham Lawson and his friends, to sheds higher up, in a colder climate where shearing necessarily commences later. From these they will pass to others, and to the last sheep in the mountain runs are shorn. Then those who have not farms of their own betake themselves to reaping. Billy May and Jack Windsor are quite as ready to back themselves against time in the wheat field as on the shearing floor. Harvest over, they find their pockets inconveniently full, so they commence to visit their friends and repay themselves for their toils by a tolerably liberal allowance of rest and recreation. Old Ben and a few choice specimens of the olden time get no further than the nearest public house. Their checks are handed to the landlord, and a stupendous and terrible spree sets in. At the end of a week, he informs them that they have received liquor to the amount of their checks, something over a hundred pounds, save the mark. They meekly acquiesce, as is their custom. The landlord generously presents them with a glass of grog each, and they take the road for the next wool shed. The shearers being dispatched, the sheep washers, a smaller and less regarded force, file up. They number some forty men, nothing more than fair bodily strength, willingness and obedience being required in their case. They are more easy to get and to replace than shearers. They are a varied and motley lot, 
that powerful and rather handsome man is a new yorker of irish parentage next to him is a slight neat quiet individual he was a lieutenant in a line regiment the lad in the rear was a sandhurst cadet then come two navvies and a new zealander five chinamen a frenchman two germans tinpot jerry and wallaby three aboriginal blacks there are no invidious distinctions as to caste colour or nationality every one is a man and a brother at sheep washing wage one pound per week wood water tents and food a la discretion their accounts are simple so many weeks so many pounds store account so much hospital well five shillings check good morning the wool pressers the fleece rollers the fleece pickers the yardsmen the washers cooks the hut cooks the spare shepherds all these and a few other supernumeraries inevitable at shearing time having been paid off the snowstorm of checks which has been fluttering all day comes to an end mr gordon and the remaining so officers go to rest that night with much of the mental strain removed which has been telling on every waking moment for the past two months the long train of drays and wagons with loads varying from twenty to forty-five bales has been moving off in detachments since the commencement in a day or two the last of them will have rolled heavily away the fourteen hundred bales averaging three and a half hundred weight are distributed slow journeying along the road which they mark from afar standing huge and columnar like guide to muli from anabanco to the waters of the murray between the two points there is neither a hill nor a stone all is the vast monotonous sea of plain at this season a prairie meadow exuberant with vegetation in the late summer or in the occasional and dreaded phenomenon of a dry winter dusty and herbless as a brick field for hundreds of miles silence falls on the plains and waters of anabanco for the next six months the wool shed the wash pen and all the huts connected with them are lone and voiceless as caravanserais in a city of the plague end of shearing in the riverina new south wales by ralph baldrewood read by five pack Selections from Simpson's Chelsea, Pimlico, Brompton, and Knightsbridge Directory and Court Guide. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Simpson's Chelsea, Pimlico, Brompton, and Knightsbridge Directory and Court Guide by Anonymous. Introduction in introducing this directory in a cheap and comprehensive form to our numerous subscribers very few comments are necessary great inconvenience is felt in all large districts through not being able at a moment's notice to discover the place of abode of various individuals such as customers friends etc to obviate this has induced us to attempt the compiling one of a pure local character at a price within the means of all classes we trust we have succeeded in completing a work which cannot fail to give satisfaction to our subscribers. It is our intention to publish annually, and doubt not, as we become more acquainted with the locality, being enabled to establish a work which will become thoroughly useful as a book of reference. Simpson & Co., March, 1863 List of Vestrymen and Parish Officers, Chelsea District 
the names and places of abode of the rector incumbent of the parish chapel curates churchwardens representative member of the metropolitan board of works vestrymen auditors and officers under the metropolis local management act overseers relieving officers medical officers superintendent registrar and registrars of births deaths and marriages vestry clerk deputy parish clerk beadles engine keepers fire escape conductors turncocks collectors of the different rates and taxes etc rector blunt the rev a gerald w m a rectory church street incumbent of the parish chapel davies the rev r h b a sixteen oakley street curates blunt the rev r frederick l a k c eighty eight oakley street singe the rev f b a Pyrcus, rev d a k c clerk in orders selwood place queen's elm fulham road churchwardens diplock t b m d one sydney street shelton richard twenty two halsey street auditors foy william forty six palton square hall william twenty two palton square richards george weevil twenty nine danvers street the vestry representative member of metropolitan board of works tight william esq m p forty two lowndes square vestrymen incumbent the churchwardens the for the time being number one or stanley ward bruin j cohen six lower sloane street foy william forty six paltons square garner thomas betts three seventeen fulham road hall william twenty two paltons square hunt henry sixteen new king's road perry john seven danvers street potter samuel five oakley crescent tipper william three sixty seven fulham road veach james june king's road west auditor adams e moore three new king's road number two or church ward blasdell alexander twenty five manor street bray john one ninety seven king's road burton edward gower twenty robert terrace callow john forty one queen's road west cox henry thirty nine king's road cook g w esq twenty five shane walk dancox samuel s one seventy seven fulham road dowbell william one forty four king's road finch w n one eighty one king's road hulse robert forty radnor street lawrence william one forty one king's road osborne w eight queen street oxford henry forty riley street richards george w twenty nine danvers street
rope robert n forty nine sloan street simmons thomas one seventy one fulham road yap george eighty three oakley street auditor layton frederick charles nineteen margareta terrace number three or hans town ward badcock john nineteen smith street birch a f f fourteen sloan street but john three ten king's road chelsea viscount twenty eight loudest street collier caleb twenty nine sloan street compton james one smith street fisher john sixty cadogan place gurney g e one marlborough road hopwood o t one ninety five sloan street layton thomas fourteen moore street paul zacharias kensal newtown rind william one eighty nine sloan street slocum thomas thirteen halsey terrace simmons elias o three exeter street tight w esq m p forty two loundest square thirst edward eleven halsey terrace todd j stanley house milner street walker charles twenty five exeter street walker t h six wellington square williams william kensal newtown auditor eisdell joseph solway one hundred seventeen sloan street number four or royal hospital ward brookfield robert five Cheltenham terrace cattle w george one o two king's road dunkley thomas eighteen lower sloan street leet john h one forty three sloan street livingston alexander eight king's road mowell's samuel a one forty two sloan street rabbits william twenty sloan square rope charles june one forty four sloan street sansom william h one thirty two king's road wayne george two king's road whitehead h seven whitehead's grove wright john eight queen's road east auditor armstrong henry stevens ninety two king's road treasurer hopkins charles esq three regent street solicitors lee pemberton and reeves forty four lincoln's inn fields clerk to the board Leahy, mr charles vestry hall king's road surveyor pattison mr joseph vestry hall king's road medical officer of health barclay dr a w vestry hall inspector of nuisances alder mr eland vestry hall overseers of the poor birch abel f f fourteen sloan street blasdell alexander twenty five manor street dancocks samuel s one seventy seven fulham road tipper william three sixty seven fulham road 
Relieving Officers Roger William, South District, 36 Upper Manor Street Tubbs, William Thomas, North District, 32 Wellington Square Medical Officers Ward, Dr. Martindale, Markham Square Keene, Mr. Thomas, 209 Kings Road Dickinson, Mr. T., 33 Sloan Street Scatliff, Dr. J. Parr, 132 Sloan Street Brown, Mr. George, Kensal Green Medical Officers for Vaccination Ward, Dr. Martindale, Markham Square Keene, Mr. Thomas, 209 Kings Road Goodrich, Mr. F., 12 Sydney Place, Fulham Road Dickinson, Mr. T., 33 Sloan Street Scatliff, Dr. J. Parr, 132 Sloan Street Brown, Mr. George, Kensal Green Superintendent Registrar Duggins, W. L., Office, Chelsea Workhouse Registrars of Births and Deaths Long, Charles S., 4 Rayner Place Larner, William, 240 Kings Road Smith, William Clifford, and of Marriages, Exeter Place, Sloan Street Vestry Clerk Leahy, Charles, Vestry Hall, Kings Road Deputy Parish Clerk Sherrill, James, 258 Kings Road Beadles, being sworn constables Nelson, R., 2 Marlborough Street Kirk, Robert, 15 Margareta Terrace Engine Keepers Piggott, William, 1 Arthur Street, Superintendent Graves, Charles, 4 Duke Street Adams, Henry, 14A, Simmons Street Fire Escape Conductors Oakley Square Station, Pusey, Nathaniel, Number 571, 30 Cumberland Street, Marlborough Road, Chelsea Sloan Square Station, McCulloch, Thomas, Number 51 Willow Cottage, Hearts Buildings, Westbourne Place. Pelham Crescent Station, Roland J.D., Number 73, 20 Wilton Street, Westminster. Knightsbridge Green Station, Watley, Frederick, Number 15, 7 Devonshire Place, Park Walk. Turncocks and their assistants. Cramp T., 11 Upper North Street. Rice, Thomas, 11 College Place Shuttleworth J. 15 Millman's Row Allen William June 4 First Street Clark E. 6 St. Mark's Road, Fulham Road Ireland John 4 Draycott Street, Cadogan Terrace Tilbrook J. 3 Chapel Place, Brompton Collectors of Land, Assessed, and Property Taxes Auten, Henry, Pavilion Cottage, New Road, Sloan Street Auten, Thomas, 119 Fulham Road Wing, C, 10 College Terrace, Bond Street Collectors of the Poor's Rate Cyril S., 16 Chelsea Village, Fulham Road Beasley, Edward, 47 Paulton Square Mayers, W.T., 19 Whitehead's Grove Auten Thomas, 119 Fulham Road Collectors of the Water Rates Day, William, 2 Beaufort Street, 
Briscoe, W.C., 9, Parkside, Knightsbridge. District Inspector of Gasworks, Pierce Richard, 192, Kings Road, Southwest. District Surveyors, Wood, S., 10, Robert Terrace, Chelsea. Beechcroft, C., 3, Horbury Terrace, Notting Hill. The fire engines and ladders are kept at the workhouse, Arthur Street, Kings Road, at the old church by the waterside, and at the depot in Draycott Place. In case of fire, give immediate notice to the engine keepers, William Pigott, Superintendent, 1 Arthur Street, Kings Road, Charles Graves, 4 Duke Street, Chelsea, near the old church, Henry Adams, 14A, Simmons Place, Sloan Square, Chief Station at the Workhouse, Arthur Street, Kings Road, the nearest fire escapes are stationed at Oakley Square, Sloan Square, Pelham Crescent, and Knightsbridge Green. Brompton Vestry Clerks of the Vestry Barton Robert Hall, Vestry Clerk, and Clerk to the Trustees Reuben Green, 21, Lansdowne Road, Notting Hill Surveyor James Broadbridge, 6, Addison Terrace Treasurers and Bankers Messrs. Hopkins and Nivet, 3 Regent Street, London. Medical Officer of Health, Francis Goodrich, June, 1 Sydney Place, Brompton. Inspectors of Nuisances, Giles Lovett, 4 Horbury Terrace, Notting Hill. George H. Wood, 10 Charles Street, Kensington. Collectors of Rates, Philip Kirk, 19 Brompton Row. John Manchester, 20, Clarendon Road, Victoria Road, Kensington. Samuel C. Kingston, 16, Gloucester Terrace, Campton Hill. Walter S. Mayers, 9, Ladbrook Road, Notting Hill. Vestryman. Archbutt Samuel, 34, Ovington Square. Barnes Thomas, 15 and 16, Prospect Place. Carver James Frederick. 1 Gray's Place, Edwards David, 15 Gilston Road, Gowtree Robert L., 6 Alfred Place West, Stimson Thomas, 1 Brompton Road, Triggs H.J., 1 Middle Queen's Buildings, Walters James, 3 Brompton Square, Wilkins John Thomas, 21 Alexander Square, Bass John, 12 Thistle Grove, Bloor John, 8 Michael's Place, Brown George, 50 Brompton Row, Heather John, 25 Brompton Crescent, Madewell Wright, 1 Alexander Place, Strickwell William, 30 Michael's Place, Mould John Thomas, 1 Onslow Crescent, Perkins C. 28 and 29 Michael's Place, Watts William, 8 Onslow Terrace, Baines Matthew, M.D., 54 Thurlow Square, Fitch William, 9 Michael's Place, Freak Charles James, Cromwell Road, Gutters George, 24 Thurlow Square, Green Edward, 28 Queen's Buildings, Kendall James, 36 Brompton Square, Peck, Samuel Burdett, 1 Brompton Road, Scott, Andrew, 
three onslow terrace turner robert nine gray's place auditor of accounts taylor thomas sixteen brompton crescent pimlico and knightsbridge vestry rector the rev henry howorth b d fifteen grosvenor street the church wardens hope thomas henry esq one hundred and fifteen piccadilly bearing the honourable and rev f nine grosvenor crescent dowden joseph eighteen upper eaton street fellows edward esq m p three belgrave square haynes george esq six hobart place stewart a j r esq thirteen belgrave square stockin frederick helkin square stockin william one parkside hyde park corner westerton charles twenty seven st george's place hyde park whitebread s charles twenty four st george's square bruce lord ernest six st george's place bagot colonel edward thirty four eaton square love dr james eleven burton street lloyd john ninety eight upper ebury street perks henry thirty four lower belgrave street romilly c esq twenty nine wilton crescent shepherd william esq one hundred eaton place vane henry m esq seventy four eaton place wallace martin twenty st george's place knightsbridge barnett james joseph twenty eight chapel street grosvenor place hamilton captain henry george r n seventy one eccleston square mitchell william c one hundred and forty warwick street peacock thomas wilner esq four eccleston terrace south webb henry two lupus street annual thomas eaton chambers lower belgrave place archbutt john twenty six victoria road camperdown earl of fifteen hill street blore charles henry nine kinnerton street chorley john r esq seventy six chester square cook james boyland fifty six and fifty seven upper ebury street james thomas thirty six denby street Merrick, stanton edward queen street phillips james thirty six lower belgrave street smith robert george thirty five ebury street smith t b eight and ten upper ebury street armfield william twenty four lower eaton street bertolacchi f r esq five cornwall terrace st george's road drake henry esq forty seven claverton terrace hodges j g esq ninety eight cambridge street jervis captain henry jervis white m p fifty four st george's road lyon henry seventy six gloucester street oldershaw r p esq seventy four warwick square smith george thomas twenty one warwick square smith william a ninety denby street arnhem william eighteen upper belgrave place bennett joseph esq seventy eccleston square 
Bennett, John, 15, Belgrave Street, South. Dunkley, Henry T., 17, Queen's Row. Leakes, Edward F., Esquire, 73, Warwick Square. Dennis, William, Esquire, 106, Cambridge Street. Englefield, Richard, 11, Lower Eaton Street. Jackson, William, 1, Denby Street. Mayrick, Edward Stanton, Queen Street. Mowat, Francis, Esquire, 24, St. George's Square. Walton, George, 6, Lower Eaton Street. Ray, John, 57, Cambridge Street. Auditor of Accounts, Wright, Edward, 97, Upper Ebury Street. Chelsea Annual Charities. James Leverus request to be distributed in sums of two shillings sixpence each to widows in March, fourteen pounds, zero shillings, zero pence. Richard Guilford's request in sums of ten shillings to poor parishioners, December 5th, ten pounds, zero shillings, zero pence. George Gregory's in bread, December 5th, zero pounds, eighteen shillings, nine pence. Samuel Hunter's Inbred and Coals, December 5th, 5 pounds, 5 shillings, 6 pence. Martha Burnsall's In Sums of 10 Shillings Each to Poor Parishioners, December 21st, 10 pounds, 4 shillings, 9 pence. Washington C.W. Ashfield's In Sums of 20 Shillings to Poor Widows, 10 Years Housekeepers, St. Thomas Day, thirty pounds zero shillings zero pence and salmons in bread and coals to those that did not receive alms december twenty fourth six pounds six shillings zero pence judith kales in sums of twenty shillings to poor widows parishioners december twenty fourth six pounds eighteen shillings zero pence john franklin's in bread and coals december or january three pounds zero shillings zero pence catherine abbott's to be equally divided among six poor women for housekeepers and parishioners january eight pounds three shillings three pence charles hatchett's in bread january second three pounds seven shillings four pence thomas stewart's to the ministers for preaching a sermon january fifth three pounds zero shillings zero pence Elizabeth D. Denner's, in sums of seven pounds, to four poor spinsters, repairs of gravestones and in bread, in sums of eleven pounds, twelve shillings, six pence, to four poor spinsters, January 6th, ninety-two pounds, zero shillings, zero pence. Luke Thomas Flood, to deserving boys and girls, in parochial schools, and clergymen, organist, clerk, and others, and to apprentice one boy and one girl of the parochial schools, and in bread, January 13th, 45 pounds, 0 shillings, 0 pence. Luke Thomas Flood, in sums of 15 pounds each, to one man and one woman, not man and wife, and formerly housekeepers, January 13th, 30 pounds, 0 shillings, 0 pence. Luke Thomas Flood, vestry room keeper, pew openers and others, to maintain tomb or in bread, employed during the day, January 13th, 
three pounds zero shillings zero pence luke thomas flood for refreshment of nine trustees or annual subscribers of one pound one shilling to the parochial schools and nine supporters for officials employed during the day january thirteenth twelve pounds zero shillings zero pence john longs in bread january fourteenth three pounds eleven shillings four pence william gibbs in sums of ten shillings six pence to eighteen poor men and eighteen poor women aged sixty third sunday in january eighteen pounds eighteen shillings zero pence mary normans in coles january twenty fourth three pounds seven shillings two pence edward shane in bread march sixteenth one pound two shillings zero pence edward chamberlain to masters of parochial schools five dollars for educating five poor boys five dollars and to apprentice one of such boys to a waterman five dollars lady day ten pounds zero shillings zero pence postal intelligence southwestern district s w this district extends from charing cross by the river to battersea bridge and thence to wimbledon kingston sunbury twickingham richmond mortlake brompton knightsbridge and st james and as far as piccadilly chief district office eight buckingham gate pimlico southwest money orders are issued and paid at this office and inquiries received for misdirected letters etc the following are the latest times for posting letters etc at this office for the london district deliveries care should be taken to deposit the letters etc in the proper box box cleared at morning five a m seven fifteen nine ten ten fifteen eleven fifteen afternoon twelve fifteen one fifteen two fifteen three fifteen four fifteen five fifteen six fifteen six forty five town receiving houses and pillar boxes those marked star are money order offices or savings banks pimlico district receiving houses number five bridge street star seven broadway fifty five cambridge street eight chapel street star forty six curlton street star seven eccleston street south one gillingham street star haymarket houses of parliament ninety eight german street star thirty three knightsbridge five lyall place five lupus street one o nine lupus street sixty five marsham street star twenty three millbank street star one new street vincent square star four pall mall colonnade star twelve parliament street star one ranley terrace star three st james's street star one sixty one sloane street one seventy nine sloane street three upper charles street belgravia district pillar boxes albert gate belgrave road belgrave square broad sanctuary carlton house terrace eaton square grosvenor place grosvenor road wall box grosvenor street west millbank posensby place new palace yard 
Paul Mall, Pont Street, Regent Circus, Rochester Street, Stockbridge Terrace, St. George's Road, Victoria Railway Station, Letterbox, Westmoreland Place, Whitehall Horse Guards. Chelsea and Brompton District, Receiving Houses, Star, Queen's Elms, Star, Brompton Road, Church Street, Chelsea, King's Road, Number 10, Star, King's Road, Number 131, Star, Old Brompton, Star, Queen's Road West, Fulham Road, Alexander Place, Fulham Road, Clifton Terrace. Pillar Boxes, Bolton's, Cadogan Pier, Chelsea, Chelsea, Marlborough Road, Devonshire Terrace, Earl's Court, Brompton, King's Road, Britain Terrace, Ovington Square, Pelham Crescent, Rutland Gate, Star, William Green. Gas Chandeliers and Gas Fittings, Wholesale, Retail, and for Exportation, Hall Lanterns, Vestibules, Pendants, Brackets, Burners, etc., Warren Smith, Manufactory and Showrooms, 66 College Street, Chelsea, Southwest, opposite Pelham Crescent, Brompton, and at 3 Queen's Road, Bayswater, five doors down from Kensington Gardens, Gas Fitters and Plumbers Brasswork, Best Welded Iron Barrel, Composition and Brass Tubes, The Cheapest House in London for Plain and Cut Gas, Glasses, Bath, hot water, and steam fittings, priceless on application, a large stock of shop and factory fittings always ready, plans and estimates for lighting public or private buildings in town or country, experienced workmen sent to all parts on the shortest notice, burners and fittings in mansions and public buildings kept in order by contract. S. W. Moss Cabinet maker, upholsterer, and undertaker, 187 York House, Fulham Road. An extensive and well-seasoned stock of new and second-hand furniture. Bronze and iron bedsteads of every description. Houses furnished throughout at the shortest notice. Sulfur. No more eruptions on the skin. A. Mollard's perfume toilet sulfur soap and sulfur cream are entirely free from any unpleasant smell, and are sovereign remedies against local or chronic cutaneous eruptions, rheumatism, pains in the joints, etc. The sulfur cream possesses all the properties of the renowned Barrage Waters for Baths, recommended by the most eminent physicians, prospectuses and testimonials on application, sold wholesale and retail by Messrs. Newby and Sons, 45 St. Paul's Churchyard, Barclay and Sons, 95 Farringdon Street, T. Keating, 79 St. Paul's Churchyard, Districhson and Hannay, 63 Oxford Street, G. Josu, 49 Haymarket, P. A. Gerard, 390 Strand, Bainbridge and Pound, 60 Leather Lane, Bosley and Coleman, Chemists, 26 Brompton Row, and at the depot, 2 Rupert Street, Coventry Street West. B. Armstrong, Family, Dispensing, and Consulting Chemist, Opposite Market Square, King's Road, Chelsea, Prescriptions Accurately Dispensed, 
n b all chemicals and drugs carefully selected from the first wholesale houses in london and warranted of the choicest quality j c sawyer stationer and bookseller three twenty three fulham road near the gilston road west brompton repository for all kinds of berlin and fancy articles a large and cheap assortment of photographic albums carte de visite portraits and all the materials for the new art of decol comania with instructions for the same noted house for foreign postage stamps of every nation catalogue albums etc library in connection with moody's and smith's and company registry for servants mcmichael's library two o seven king's road chelsea established eighteen forty seven in connection with Muddy's, also with United Libraries of Booz, Carlton, Saunders, and Oatley's, Regent Street, and the Library Company, 30 St. James Square. Residents in South Kensington, Brompton, and Chelsea may obtain all the advantages of a first-class library by subscribing for any of the following terms. Annual subscription, one volume, ten shillings sixpence, two volumes, one pound one shilling four volumes one pound sixteen shilling sixpence six volumes two pounds seven shilling sixpence half yearly two volumes twelve shilling sixpence four volumes one pound one shilling six volumes one pound ten shilling quarterly two volumes seven shilling sixpence four volumes twelve shilling sixpence six volumes seventeen shilling sixpence monthly two volumes three shilling sixpence four volumes five shilling sixpence six volumes seven shilling sixpence weekly two volumes one shilling four volumes two shilling six volumes six shillings all new books and exchangeable at pleasure j m begs to call the attention of the gentry to the above reduced scale of subscriptions to his library the largest collection in the neighbourhood of original carte de veste portraits by kilburn sylvie mayall and others also album portraits of all the local clergy etc 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 portrait albums from two shillings sixpence to two pounds two shillings an extensive assortment of gift books suitable for prizes presents or new year's gifts hymn books as used at st paul's church onslow square six pence each and upwards all the works of the reverend capel monoyou kept in stock music at half price book binding in all its branches note paper sixpence one shilling sixpence two shillings and three shillings per packet of five choirs envelopes sixpence ninepence one shilling and one shilling sixpence per one hundred black bordered note sixpence per choir ditto envelopes one shilling sixpence per one hundred depot for de la rue's note paper and envelopes Newspaper and address office, duty off playing cards, De La Rue's cards from one shilling per pack. 
international exhibition from the standard and morning herald december twenty sixth eighteen sixty two in the balance sheet one of the most satisfactory items will be the shilling and two shilling sixpence day tickets which sold remarkably well one agent alone mcmichael's library of two o seven king's road chelsea who was the first to take the matter up disposed of over five thousand pounds worth of day and season tickets which numbered upwards of one hundred thousand agent for the sale of tickets for the monday popular concerts and the national harp concerts at st james's hall w g cattle and company cigars by the box containing over one hundred in number from nine shillings sixpence snuffs very choice our own and foreign manufacture tobaccos of the finest quality imported n b a famous and delicious smoking mixture that will not blister the mouth seven shillings sixpence per pound address w g cattle and company one o two king's road chelsea southwest w atkinson tailor and trouser maker fifty six walton street brompton in expressing his acknowledgment for the support he has hitherto received begs to inform his customers and the inhabitants generally of the neighborhood that he continues to furnish the best materials made up in a fashionable and elegant style at a moderate scale of charges and begs to assure those who may entrust him with their commands that every attention shall be paid to their wishes liveries and juvenile clothing on the shortest notice r bird french dyer and finisher hot pressure etc thirty three lower sloane street chelsea feathers cleaned or dyed as in paris moray silks dyed and rewatered satins dyed and embossed or finished plain shawls skirts dresses gloves etc cleaned and dyed chintz furniture cleaned and glazed bed and window curtains of every description cleaned and dyed blacks dyed every week gloves and ribbons cleaned twice a week established eighteen forty nine days restorative essence a preventative of indigestion spasms flatulence diarrhoea cramp cholera colic neuralgia nervous depression etc invaluable to military and naval gentlemen travellers sportsmen etc also to public speakers and vocalists for preserving their voice in stamped bottles two shilling ninepence and eleven shillings each caution please observe the written signature charles day upon the government stamp without which none is genuine dose for adults from one dessert spoonful to two tablespoonfuls dose for children from half teaspoonful to two teaspoonfuls according to age this preparation can be taken either with or without the addition of water the proportion of a tablespoonful to a bottle of soda or seltzer water forms a most refreshing and invigorating draught mr day was elected by examination and for many years dispenser at the king's college and middlesex hospitals he can therefore with confidence offer this preparation as a boon to the public prepared only by charles day family chemist twenty four sloane street loudest square southwest 
Confident Life Assurance and Loan Company Limited, established 1855, capital 100,000 pounds, chief office 13 Finsbury Place, South, London, E.C. All kinds of assurance and annuity business transacted, 70% of the profits divided amongst the insurers every fifth year. Policies made payable during the lifetime of the insurer. Sick policies, guaranteeing from five shillings to one pound per week during sickness. Stamp and medical fees paid by the company. Loans are granted in connection with life assurance at a moderate rate of interest. G. W. Gidley Lake, Secretary. Active agents wanted. Smith's Steam Bakery, 1 Grove Terrace, Brompton. Report on the bread made by Mr. Smith, by Dr. Hassel. I hereby certify that I have examined several samples of bread purchased at the establishment of Mr. Smith of No. 1 Grove Terrace, Brompton. I found them to be made of flour of excellent quality, to be free from alum, and to be perfectly genuine. The bread manufactured by W. Smith was furnished to Messrs. F. E. Morris and Company, refreshment contractors at the great international exhibition and will serve as an interesting record of the unprecedented consumption in that department and the satisfactory quality of the bread supplied which was as follows household bread two hundred thousand pounds french loaves twenty four thousand one hundred twenty five pounds sandwich bread sixty seven thousand six hundred pounds brown bread one thousand five hundred and thirty pounds dinner rolls two hundred and ten thousand pounds william smith cook confectioner and biscuit maker thirty seven brompton row southwest wedding breakfasts tea parties and ball suppers supplied by contract ices jellies blanche menage custards etc dessert and luncheon cakes rich wedding sponge pound and madeira cakes made to order refreshment rooms jones truss and bandage maker artificial limbs etc thirty five sloane street london southwest elastic stockings kneecaps etc waterproof sheeting air and water cushions enemas injection bottles urinals etc crutches arm slings instruments repaired charities supplied Improved invalid feeding tubes, ladies attended by Mrs. Jones. Good tea, James Wells, 4B Sloane Street, 10 doors from Knightsbridge. Umbrellas, parasols, and walking sticks, H.C. Prince, umbrella, parasol, and walking stick manufacturer, 147 Fulham Road, Brompton. Umbrellas and parasols recovered and repaired, walking sticks dressed and mounted s w pascal liner cleaner and restorer of old pictures one gloucester road old brompton gilding in all its branches new frames to order old ones re-gilt equal to new s w pascal begs to thank his patrons for their liberal support and assures them that all pictures entrusted to him will be done with the greatest care S.W.P. having had great experience for the last twenty-five years. Established 1826, Dunkley's, cheapest house in London for gentlemen's boots and shoes of every description of the first quality. 
Dunkley's Noted House, 17 Queen's Row, Pimlico, for Ladies' Fashionable Boots and Shoes of Every Kind. Dunkley's Celebrated House for Yews, Young Ladies' and Children's Boots and Shoes, in immense variety, at the very lowest prices. For tender feet, for the softest of French calf-kid boots, durable, pliant, and handsome, Dunkley's Golden Boot. 17 Queen's Row, Pimlico Southwest, opposite Buckingham Palace. Merchants, captains, and schools supplied on liberal terms. End of Selections from Simpson's Chelsea, Pimlico, Brompton, and Knightsbridge Directory and Court Guide by Anonymous.